When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling. Jim Ross, JR, how are you, man? I'm good, man. Good, good, good. I feel good. I had a good weekend. Had, I had a, for the 22nd year in a row, we had a uh, Oklahoma football coaches dinner at one of my friend's restaurants that he closed down and we had big bone-in ribeye steaks and all kinds of good stuff, man. And, uh, and uh, uh, by the way, you would like this, Conrad. We had a open bar. Oh, hell yeah. For three and a half hours. So I did, I, I woke up this morning at hazy. I was hazy. <laughs> so, but it's all good. Had a great time. We 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 uh we rebooked the territory, so to speak, at the football. We called all the plays, and uh, but I had a good time. Good good time. A lot of friends. So, I'm ready to go. This is a good good show. We got we got some good stuff to talk about today, and, and stuff even that we're not even uh, officially talking about. We're going to talk about. So, I, I like these days. Absolutely. These recording days are the, the best days of the week for me. It's all good. So yeah. it's good, man. Hey, I. Uh, I got a lot of comments this past week on, and I, all those shows, folks, we're going to have a lot of fun. You notice our shows are are fan friendly, the price fan friendly. Uh, you'll find no more friendly guys than us. We enjoy meeting the fans, taking pictures, signing your swag, bring your bring your souvenirs, all that stuff. We'll have some pictures of things as well. Uh, and Conrad's always coming up with all kinds of lovely prizes and little bonuses and all those say premiums, I guess you say. Anyway. It's going to be good. But I got a lot of good positive comments about your show with Bruce on uh, me. Wow. And, yeah, I got good, there's good feedback. And everybody, most most everybody liked it. Some thought Bruce was a little shitty a couple of times, but uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't detect that, quite frankly. But uh, the only thing I would take exception to is him thinking that the, him trying to pass off and bullshit his way through another one by saying that anybody should see that the uh, Dr. Heine was nothing going to be but was nothing but love for Jr. Now, folks, here's the deal. If you remember that odd scene piece of shit, uh, then I wish you'd tell me. You can tweet me at JRSBBQ. What was funny about it? 
tell me what was funny about it, and maybe I'm missing the joke. If so, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll reset. But anyway, it wasn't fun. It upset my family and it upset my wife. And now with my sensitivities of my wife gone, and I think about things that pissed her off, hurt her feelings, more importantly, more specifically, it ain't funny. So uh, sorry. It's like some of their TV they've been producing. It ain't funny. Ain't entertaining. It's like the high school drama class sometimes. You know, leave it alone. Just wrestle. Just fucking wrestle and be physical. And uh, is that too much to ask Conrad? Just wrestle and be physical and tell me great stories? No, I don't think it is. And I think that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I know it's what we talked about last week. Great American Bash 1989. I got tremendous feedback over this. I feel like we introduced uh, a lot of new fans to that show for the first time. And I don't know that you saw this, but with the update to the WWE Network, you can sort of see what's trending. And last week when our episode dropped, a lot of people were watching. It was trending on the WWE Network. That's good. Well, we're, we, we, we've hit a pulse with our show, and our, your concept is working amazingly well. And uh, it's the best format I've worked in. I needed to get away from being by myself, uh, you know, months ago. And then, thank goodness, we crossed paths, and here we are. Uh, but I really like what we're doing. I think it's got the fans' interest. I know that our numbers are increasing, and we appreciate that. You know, we appreciate you telling your friends about our show. Hell, the damn thing is free, folks. If you like our conversation, why don't you just subscribe? It'll cost you a damn dime. Not a damn dime. So uh, we appreciate your business in that deal. But I, 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 uh, I, I, I listen to the show. I like Bruce did did pretty good. But you look, he and Eric both are in a tough spot, man. They got to be careful on what they say or they don't say. They have to be careful how they embellish. They are working for WWE. They're getting paid, uh, I'm sure, very handsomely for their efforts, as they should. So how do you go? You can't go out there and, and piss in the boss of Cheerios every every week on your podcast. Ain't going to work. So they'll be coming to Jesus meeting on that deal if, if it does persist. But uh, I understand the, the jam those guys are in. But Conrad, you and I ain't no jam. We can say what the hell we want. <laughs> Well, and there's no jam in today's episode. We, uh, we teased last week that we were going to cover SummerSlam 97. So of course we are. And I, uh, errantly put out that we were covering Ron Simmons. So we are going to be doing a Ron Simmons episode and it will be the very first bonus show that we drop on our Patreon. No, the Patreon is not ready yet. We're still in the process of procuring some, some backlog stuff that I think fans will be really excited about. Uh, but we got uh, a nod in the right direction of the last week or so. So stay tuned for that more bonus content. I can't imagine, uh, that, that we've heard the best of Jr. and, and, and there'll be more of that on Patreon, but without further ado, let's get to SummerSlam 1997. We're talking about this, of course, because it went down roughly this time, uh, what, 22 years ago now. Yeah. August 3rd, 1997 at the continental airlines arena in New Jersey. And this is the first televised WWF event from East Rutherford in like eight years, uh, I think since SummerSlam 89. And a lot of this is because of the tax laws, uh, that had impacted wrestling shows in New Jersey. And then in 1997, the New Jersey governor, uh, Mrs. Whitman, she lifted the taxes, which led to the WWF returning to New Jersey with televised events. And they even presented her with a women's championship. Uh, which there wasn't even a women's championship in this era yet, but they brought back and commissioned an old one with a pink leather strap and Vince McMahon signed it to the next or to our future president of the United States, something Vincent Kennedy McMahon, pretty cool deal. I mean, this is in your home territory. 
New Jersey has been a, a wrestling hotbed for a long time. And, uh, it had to be a big deal for you guys to be able to return there on pay-per-view. It was multi, uh, multi, uh, uh, layered Conrad, because there was a whole big lobbying thing and, and, uh, uh, discussions about, you know, uh, WWE getting, uh, taxed like a, a sport, uh, and there was athletic, this and athletic that, and, and it, it was a money grab obviously. And so, and the governor, uh, and she was a nice lady. I met her really nice. Christy Whitman. Uh, I, I, I thought she'd go farther in politics than she did. I don't know where she's at right now, but nonetheless, uh, she was a very accommodating and she brought more business into her, her state in New Jersey, uh, by, uh, by doing so. So she was a, she was a good lady in that regard. You, you always remember those trips for TV that are close to home. And when you travel as much as we did in those days, every week, every Monday night in another location, uh, those short trips are, are very, uh, well thought of. So, uh, it was a, it was a good, good day, good short trip. Packed house. I mean, we did 20,000 people there. I think it was something like that. It was amazing. It was a big house. And, uh, and, and I thought the show was pretty damn good actually by and large, there's some bad news on it, but we'll get into that. I guess we should mention that, um, his testimony, Vince McMahon's from February of 89, when he appeared in front of the state of New Jersey Senate said that wrestling should be defined as quote, an activity in which participants struggle and hand to hand primarily for the purposes of providing entertainment to spectators rather than conducting a bona fide athletic contest. Now, of course, you're in February of 89, uh, you're in Chicago calling Ric Flair and Ricky steamboat for the world title. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are you guys thinking of, of Vince McMahon's testimony here in New Jersey? Well, it was a touchy subject for the old timers like me, uh, that because he was taking down the wall of, uh, the kayfabe wall or the, what really goes on behind the closed door. And I think a lot of people are a little bit concerned about that uh, to some degree. Anyway, uh, how much is he going to release? How much is he going to talk about? How, how are the follow-up interviews going to be proceeded? But I think what we've done is we gave the fans did give the media and the fans enough credit. They, they kind of knew what was going on all along, you know, same old deal, man, throw me in the turnbuckle, jump on that second rope and punch me 10 times in the face. And I don't bleed. I don't swell. I don't have no redness no discoloration. It's a work. So we do that to ourselves all the time. We're just don't want to admit it. We're stupid in how we expose the business inadvertently. So, uh, I, we, the only thing, how far is he going to go with this deal? And, uh, but we also knew that if the athletic commissions and a lot of these States were, were for wrestling or done away with Conrad, it was going to make at that time for me, WCW more money because we could, we could enjoy the success of having the taxes, uh, relieved a little bit. And that was, that was really the bottom line of the whole damn thing, tax relief and making it more affordable to run some of these markets. I guess we should mention that, uh, coming into this show, SummerSlam 97, the company is riding high on that hugely successful pay-per-view that we just recently covered Canadian stampede right there in Calgary. Um, the feeling coming out of that show is that it's, it's the best show of the year and uh, now we're going to try to keep that momentum going, but the business is certainly trending up, especially compared to like 95. It's up a little bit from 96, but way up from 95, your paid attendance at 95 is averaging, uh, 3,275 fans. That's in August of 95, August of 96, you're way up 5,486 fans. 
And then again, we're up a little bit more in 97, 5,615 fans. Now, what does that mean in dollars and cents? Your average gate in 95, 44 grand. Your average gate in 96, 80 grand. Your average gate in 97, 88 grand. Now, ratings, for whatever reason, most would say the NWO have actually started to dip a little bit. Uh, 95 would be a 2.1, 96 would be a 2.0, and 97 is a 1.6. And as a result, buy rates are actually down a little bit. So it's weird that folks are coming out to see your live show, but they're, they're choosing something different on Monday Night Raw. And maybe they're having to pick the WCW pay-per-views instead of the WWF pay-per-views. Your average revenues on your pay-per-views go from 2.66 in 95 to 2.19 in 96. And now we're down to just 1.7 in 97. What does it say to you, someone who's been in the business for decades, when house show attendance is up, but ratings and pay-per-view revenue is down? Uh, It means to me that uh, WCW was producing a more compelling television show. Uh, and the inclusion of hall and Nash, and then, uh, the Hogan thing turning heel, uh, it trumped everything we did until we got to Tyson and Austin and then business picked up for us a little bit. Uh, but I think that's a bottom line. Generally Conrad, we could all make and, and, and wrestling people are bad about this. We like to make excuses and not take responsibility for our shortcomings. Sometimes the bottom line is, is that we weren't giving the fans what they wanted to see at a higher level than WCW was with the NWO and, and they were riding that horse because it was the hottest thing going. Right. And, you know, we, we were waiting, we kept, that's why this show in, in, uh, in, uh, New Jersey was so crucial in a lot of ways. It almost killed us because stone cold got hurt and that would, that would have been horrific for a lottery, obviously the human nature, human side of it, but we were just putting our team together and, and rebounding. And I think that uh, we just hadn't quite caught up. And then on those 83 weeks that we got our ass kicked, uh, they, they kicked our ass because they, they did a better show and they had more compelling stuff. And a lot of guys want to admit that Oh no, it wasn't that well, it was, you know, the, that McDonald's down the street was open enough and hell it's, Hell of a crowd there for those damn cheeseburgers. Come on, man. We didn't have what they wanted to see. And then Austin started getting over and moving out of the heel side into the baby character, baby face side. Uh, then, and I've just a lot of people listen to this. We know what a character baby face is, but that's a dusty rose is a character baby face. Ricky steamboat was a baby face. Uh, they're, they're, they're personalities, you know, they're, they're not the clean cut, uh, you know, they're, it's just a different thing. The character baby face Austin was moving from heel to character baby face. It would never be a total baby face because he would never let himself be that, but we're waiting on Austin to evolve Conrad. And, but quite frankly, they just, they're putting a better team on the field, whipping their ass at that point in time. Let's talk about, um, you know, this show in particular famous for a lot of reasons. Of course, uh, it's going to lay the groundwork for all the upcoming pay-per-views specifically survivor series. Um, 97 mm-hmm. is, is, is most famous for this. USA versus Canada rivalry. We've got the heart foundation on the one side and pretty much anybody they feud with on the American side, but stone cold, Steve Austin is going to use this feud to really help springboard him to another level, just an amazing time in wrestling history. And certainly in the WWF history. And during the summer of 97, you guys would have a raw in America. And of course the, the, the heels from Canada were just booed out of the building. 
But meanwhile, the next week you'd have a show in Canada and it is a total flip-flop. It is a hero's welcome for the heart foundation. And the same is true for the Americans like stone cold super hero here in America. Uh, but the most dastardly loudest booze, I mean, major heat in Canada, nothing like that had ever really existed in wrestling. At least that I know of, is that true? That's pretty accurate. I think so. You know, Austin was a phenomenon, you know, the. The NWO thing was a collage. It's an ensemble cast, uh, a really good components, uh, good booking, good creative, but an ensemble cast. Nonetheless, Austin was a solo act. And for a while, Conrad, as fans will remember, there was never a hotter and I, and I, in all due respect to Hogan, who was, you know, he's still top of the mark for his, uh, tenure and how you many years on top and. Cause you got to count the Japan work he did on top, the AWA work he did on top, uh, and notwithstanding all the WWF stuff, WWE stuff subsequently. Uh, but Austin was a phenomenon. He guys like him don't come along. Now we were very lucky that we had two, we had stone cold and we had the rock. So we had, uh, we had in the old deal. We had basically, uh, Joe Montana and Steve young. We had two all pro quarterbacks that, uh, you're just waiting to see who's the most play in time. And so Steve getting hurt, uh, was, was horrific. Uh, but it, we thank God we had uh, a good balanced roster and we had this other young guy named Dwayne Johnson who was rising up the ladder as well. So, you know, we were fortunate in, in some ways there, but, uh, it, it was just, we all sensed that Austin was going to be extraordinary. The fans are responding to him. Every measurable was checking all the boxes, merchandise sales off the hook. Nobody ever sold as much merchandise as stone cold did in that era. And they got better as they got more over, he sold more stuff. And, uh, so I, I, I think that we, we dodged a hell of a bullet there with his injury on that night, but, uh, it was just a really great competitive situation. You know, it's competition is good for everybody. I don't care who it is. What, 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 and what entity you're in football business podcasting, wrestling, whatever it might be. Competition is good for everybody. And, and we experienced that there with these cats, the, the, they, 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 they shut it up our ass and, and, uh, made us like it, so to speak. And all we could do is keep working and work. That's what I tell the guys every week we got, we're only as good as the last show. So now let's go out and do another one. And we keep putting good shows together back to back somewhere along the way, we're going to turn the corner and we're going to be right where we need to be. And it happened. That absolutely happened, but it wasn't happening yet here in the summer of 97 on the opposite channel. Dennis Rodman is going to make his wrestling debut for WCW at bash at the beach. And I want to bring this up because there's been lots of rumor and innuendo where you guys tried to put together a deal for him the year prior in 1996, where perhaps he would work with Goldust, perhaps something at WrestleMania. Of course, we know that's where Goldust wound up taking on Roddy Piper and perhaps something at SummerSlam. Do you remember having some sort of preliminary talks with Dennis Rodman in 96? Very preliminary Conrad, very preliminary. Uh, a lot of us never had the confidence that others did in Dennis. Uh, you know, we're not talking about rebounding or the all defensive team, in the NBA, uh, as a matter of fact, here's a, here's a, here's a little, uh, pearl for you. When I was officiating college basketball. Uh, Dennis was playing at Southeastern Oklahoma state in Durant. And I, I called a couple of his ball games. He was a skinny as hell, uh, center. 
played the post and he was so fast. He, he, was, a, he was an extraordinary athlete. He was freaky. But I, I remember that. And he was, he wasn't a bad, he wasn't a bad citizen on, on the fourth court. He wasn't like he would think he might be, but we didn't have the confidence. A lot of other guys did in that deal. And, and it was spending a lot of money on an attraction, uh, match where one half of the attraction doesn't know how to work. So he has no fundamental skills. So to spend a million bucks or so, wherever it might be for a package of dates, didn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, but you know, if this will want to do it, you know, we'd gone aggressively to try to get it done. But I just, it, it, the negotiations were not, uh, easily appeased and it all came down to the same old deal. If somebody says it's not about the money, bullshit, it's all about the money. And we just weren't going to pony up the cash for an unskilled performer uh, in a, an attraction match, a special attraction match type thing. This didn't make a lot of sense at the end of the day. And they did well with it, but that fit more of their stuff too. Uh, you know, we're trying to be get stone cold. These guys hard hitting, Bret Hart. You know, we're 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 we have we run a different offense, and and uh, but well, they did well with it. But six months later, you're you're running that same play with Mike Tyson, aren't you? Yeah, but Mike Tyson was a bigger star than Dennis Rodman. No doubt. By far. It wasn't even a comparison. I mean, again, Dennis is a good basketball player. Uh, and he, well, his, he became a big pop culture character with his outlandish and bizarre behavior. Uh, piercings and tattoos and, the wedding and, all, dress. and yeah. all this stuff. Well, let's talk about... Uh this pay-per-view here and how we're going to sell it. One of the things you do about two weeks out, uh, I think on July 14th, you ran a special on the network. It was a SummerSlam special and it's going to get a pretty good rating 3.75. But what's interesting is what you're choosing to show. Uh, one of the matches is from the very first, uh, SummerSlam. So it's Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage against Ted DiBiase and Andre the giant. And at this point, of course, Andre, the giants passed away, but three of the other four are actually in WCW. Uh, that's not usually something Vince McMahon would do. Uh, what's up with airing old content that was sort of putting over the competition. Is this a USA network request Did Vince sort of let his guard down for this one? What's the rationale? I think the rationale was we're going to show you how they used to be. Mm. And you can see on, on, uh, on T on TNT, how they are. Uh, we're going to show you how they were when they were in their peak and they're going to bring you, they're going to feature guys that are, are not in their peak. I think that's the whole deal. So you're, you're not getting the Hulk Hogan. You grew up and loved and admired and all these things. You're getting an older version of Hulk Hogan. Who's now, by the way, a villain. So, uh, I think, I think, I don't think USA had anything to do with it. Somebody talked to Vince about it, you know, about you know, it'd be a great idea or whatever. I, 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 I don't like that kind of shit. I don't like it at all. I, they shouldn't have been on our team. They should have been on the show. That's like me, uh, working for AEW and then trying to filter in some cute little clever knocking WWE lines during the broadcast. You will never hear a negative word regarding WWE from Jim Ross on AEW broadcast ever. That's not my job. It helps no one. It's childish. It's bullshit. So, uh, but I think that's kind of what it was just to, Hey, these ain't the same guys you grew up loving. And, you know, I, it was, they shouldn't have been on the air and I'll do respect to those guys too. I, I just didn't think that was a smart move by us. And, but uh, Hey, look, they were hot on WCW and they helped us get a rating back in their former, former personas in WWE. So at the end of the day, I guess the old man was right. 
Hey man, let me give you a little life hack just in time for mother's day and father's day. I'm talking about paintyourlife.com. That's the place where you can get a gift that mom or dad will never forget. Real quick, do you remember what you got mom or dad last year for Mother's Day or Father's Day? Well, here's how you give a gift that they'll never forget. You find something that's meaningful, something that's personal. Maybe we're talking about their mom or dad who's no longer here. Maybe it's about a long-lost relative. Maybe it's about their favorite pet who's no longer with us. Maybe there was always this dream that mom and dad were going to vacation to some exotic tropical island, but they never quite made it there. Well, all of those dreams can become reality at paintyourlife.com. You simply upload those photos. You can even use a photo right out of your phone. They can even help you combine photos to create one unique memory. You'll pick the artist. You'll even pick the medium. Hey, do you want an oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even pick the frame. The whole process is less than five minutes to get started. You can get it in as little as two weeks, but along the way, you work hand in hand to ensure that the artist is nailing it. They're getting exactly what you wanted and you're going to get that reaction you wanted from mom or dad. I'm telling you, this has been a home run for me. I've used it for my mom, for my dad, for my father-in-law, for my cousin, for my wife. It's great for any occasion, but with mother's day and father's day right around the corner, how do we show the people who gave us everything that we really care? I don't think you can beat a meaningful gift like this from paintyourlife.com. And if you're looking to give the best and most meaningful gift you've ever given, paintyourlife.com can hook you up. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text R-O-S-S to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. The July 14th Raw from San Antonio really starts to shape up SummerSlam. This Raw is a sellout, 7,700 fans paying 116,000 bucks. Uh, It's the largest gate in U.S. dollars for a Raw taping in history up to that point. It shows you where the business is headed. The show opens with a Hart Foundation interview with Vince McMahon, and they announced that at SummerSlam, if Brett doesn't beat The Undertaker for that title, he will never wrestle in the United States again. If Bulldog loses to Shamrock, he's going to have to eat a can of dog food. If Pillman loses to Goldust, he'll wrestle the next night on Raw in a dress. And if Austin doesn't beat Owen, he has to kiss his ass in the ring. And if any member of the Hart Foundation lose, then Jim Neidhart gets his goatee shaved the next night on Raw. These stipulations sort of come out of nowhere. I mean, I understand that you, you want every match to have stakes, but it feels sort of weird that he's just sort of running them all down here to start the show. Is this a, a Russo call or, or whose idea is this? I'm sure it's a Russo call. Uh, well, you know, it was the hottest thing we had going. I love that Canadian, uh, USA rivalry. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I thought it was healthy. It wasn't based on communism or, uh, you know, any other kind of atrocity. It was the same thing you see when, uh, you know, uh, 
watching, let's say, for example, the United States women's uh, hockey team against the Canadian women. It gets big ratings because it's, it's got something we all can, we're all vested in our country, in our, in our people, and it's, our, it's us against them. It's a friendly rivalry. But, of course, in the wrestling world, it got embellished, and it wasn't friendly that, for that much, uh, for that long. But uh, I love that whole, that whole booking. I love, I love the whole situation there because if you look back at those matches that match his name, Conrad, you got to, here's what you got in that card. You got Bulldog and Shamrock in a single. There's no reason that shouldn't be a great match. No reason. Uh, you got Taker and Brett, with a big stipulation for the title, the title, WWE title. And, uh, that's two of the great workers of all time. You got Austin and Owen. We know what happened in the match, but exclude that, that match should have been off the page as well. So what you've done in this heart thing is that instead of making a, uh, a, uh, hor- a, a, uh, horizontal booking, <clears throat> Uh, pardon me. We, we did a vertical booking. In other words, you take those five guys in the heart foundation and you put them in matches and single matches. So that's vertical. They're not in tags. That'd be horizontal. And so that your card has more depth. It has more quality. So it was a good idea. I thought in that regard, I thought that we've probably gotten the game a little bit late on the stipulations, but I think the idea was to make them feel more, uh, spontaneous. And they, they're, they're, these stipulations are a result of these actions. So the actions had to occur before the stipulations really made any sense. And, uh, so that's how I looked at that situation. It was a, I like the, the heart foundation, uh, Austin group and so forth. And it really got good. You know, as we're leading in here, you know, we're going to survivor series 97. We all know what that means in Montreal. So this is a hell of a year right here. A lot of things are being put into place for the long haul. With a lot of trepidation again, because we didn't know how Austin was going to be. Is he going to come back? Can he come back? If he can come back, what's he going to be? You know, there's a lot of questions there that we didn't have answers to. Well, something that is going to be a question coming out of this particular raw taping is what are we going to do with Takamichi Noku? He has a great showing against Yoshihiro Tajiri. Of course, we know both of those guys are going to wind up becoming staples with the company. Uh, and apparently he impressed the company enough that you guys are going to take a flyer on Taka and sign him. Um, Bruce Pritchard has talked about, you know, Taka as being one of his favorites and somebody he really championed for, uh, is there anybody else that really caught, you know, was, was taken aback by Taka and thought, man, this guy could be the, the deal. Taka was introduced to us by Victor Quinones, as I recall, and Victor had a great relationship, uh, in, in those days with the, some of the new, some of the J- Japanese, uh, offices and, uh, Michinoku Pro was a was a group that he was affiliated with. So we hired we hired uh, uh, Taka, we hired Sho Funaki, uh, we hired uh, who's the other guy? The third we hired your favorite Dick to Go. Sure, everybody loves Dick to Go. Yeah, oh, Dick to Go, sponsored by Blue Chew. Uh, and we had they, and then one more guy. What's the other guy's name? God dang, I feel I'm losing Men's Tao. Yeah, Men's Tao. So all those guys came about the same time, but Taka was kind of singled out as he's the best of the four, but quite frankly, the other three weren't bad and hell Funaki, uh, has loved it so much. He still lives in San Antonio. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, somebody who, somebody else who pops up here only for a moment though, I should have mentioned when, uh, the heart foundation are in the ring, sort of laying out all these stipulations, Steve Austin comes out, then Shamrock, then the Patriot. Uh, then Sid, then Shawn Michaels. So we've got 
sort of an all-star cast here of guys who, I mean, we know we're going to start pushing Shamrock. That's very evident. We know Sid and Sean and Austin are top guys, but they introduced the Patriot here and McMahon calls him Dell Wilkes, the Patriot. How does this deal come together for him to come in? Is it sort of just natural booking that, Hey, we've got a USA, a Canadian, you know, mm-hmm. country rivalry. Let's bring in Dell. Or is there more to it than that? No, I don't think so. Uh, red, white, and blue mask. Yeah. You know, uh, great body, you know, all American football player from South Carolina. Good guy. Uh, he battled some, uh, drug demons later on in his career. Uh, and had had a, and I, I was too soft hearted a lot of these things sometimes, I guess, because I hired a lot of guys that you want to get that one more run out of them for their sake. Yeah. And, uh, Vader was one of those guys. Dr. Death's one of those guys. And Dell Wilkes is one of those guys. There are others, but those three I could come up with off the top of my head. Uh, it just fit. It, he was all, all America, the Patriot, the red, white, and blue thing. He was a fresh piece of talent. We had not featured a, a mask, uh, baby face, uh, in a, in a, you know, to any significant, at least with any regularity. So it was a, kind of a new act, but it fit the, it fit the motif of, uh, USA versus Canada. It was a, it was a good, good thing there. And, and I think, uh, uh, I thought we did a nice job at least getting Dell on the radar in the early going. This is also the show where we see. Sean Michaels do an interview with Shane McMahon and he's begging to be a part of SummerSlam so he can see undertaker beat Brent Hart and send him packing. Uh, it was around this time that you guys had just finished a wrestle vessel trip. Bruce has talked about that a little bit in the archives of something to wrestle. What can you tell us about the old wrestle vessel concept? Well, it was fun. Uh, it was much like the Jericho cruise that, uh, I went on last year, uh, or last, last, was it last year? Yeah. 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 Last year, last fall, uh, it was fun. Uh, saw a lot of fans that were, you know, spent hard, their hard earned money. God bless them to take probably some of them took vacations. They couldn't afford, but here they were. And you got to love them for that. Uh, but I had a good time. Jan had a great time. Uh, everybody pretty much demanded their manners. I saw, uh, there's some, there's some funny pictures that are still out there. You can look up folks, uh, from the wrestle vessel. You know, you had Sonny on that cruise and that was always a, a wild card. And, uh, and, uh, I can't, I there's a picture of her and my wife and a bunch of us, but you could just, the body English tells a great story. So if you run across that picture, I'm sitting down, uh, uh, in front, in the, on the front row, uh, with some of these guys, but everybody had a little story to tell in their body English. It was kind of funny because. Nobody wanted to let the other guy get over. It was, it was such bullshit. It's so funny in that regard, but it was a success. You know, we had a good time with it. And, uh, of course our friend Chris Jericho is maintaining that, uh, that, uh, wrestling cruising scenario. And I guess this, this next thing he's going to do is doing great. So good for our friend, Chris. Yeah. I'm looking at this picture you're talking about now, and this is, uh, quite the picture. Yeah. See the body English. Yeah. I totally get what you're talking about. <laughs> so check you it out. It? We may post you, it on some of our social media. This is a fun pick. Did you see Brett setting it aside, kind of d- detached? Yes. And you see uh, Sunny hugging. Uh, she's not hugging in this one, but you can definitely uh, you're you're Ricky Bobby in a little bit. You're not sure what to do with your hands, and 
Austin, <laughs> Austin's got a great shirt that says, take me drunk. I'm home. This is fun stuff. We'll make sure yeah. we post that. Let's yeah, also sure. talk about, um, the main event of this show, because we see Steve Austin here set to defend the tag titles by himself. Of course, his partner, Shawn Michaels is, uh, not able to compete and he's injured. So he's going to be defending these tag titles against Owen Hart and the British bulldog. And he's had them since like may, uh, but Michaels is out with that knee injury. So they're going to start as a handicap match here for the tag titles. But before they go to commercial, we see the camera show a white boot. And then the show comes back on and we hear over the PA system, uh, Steve, O. looks like you could use a little help, maybe like a tag team partner. And here you go. It's dude love. So mankind had been asking Steve to be his partner for weeks that never worked. Now we get this new character, dude love, which we've heard about, uh, from his sit down interview with you. And now dude love is going to become Steve's partner. Uh, this is fascinating to me because I don't remember a character like this, where mankind is introduced to the WWF audience as this deranged individual. He's hanging out in, in the, um, the bowels of the building and he's rocking back and forth and pulling his own hair out and playing with rats and, uh, feuding with the undertaker. And, you know, you're talking about now mix a happy married guy. Yes. Rats being like George, the rat, Jim Cornette's rat. <laughs> Not yes. Thank you. Uh, but, but then of course he does this sit down interview with you and he's explaining that, Hey, uh, he does feel pain and, and here's the way I am, the way I am. And I was made to eat worms as a kid. And, you know, I didn't grow up to look like Shawn Michaels. I wanted to, here's footage of me being a character named dude love when I was in high school, but I could never be dude love. I'm this instead. And then he gives you the goozle with the old mandible claw. And so we see him attack this beloved figure. But then they start selling t-shirts of the smiley face with the mask on it. And now he's introducing this new lovable character, dude, love, man, this is the most layered character in wrestling history to this point. Is it not? Yeah. And Mick, it's all, all compliments to Mick Foley. I mean, Mick pulled off three distinctively different characters in cactus, Jack, uh, dude, love and uh, mankind. And they all had their own little nuances that he, that travel with that character. It's brilliance uh, at its very best. Anybody that uh, hasn't followed that particular segment of wrestling and WWE at, uh, during that time, really should check that out because, uh, and there's videos and there's documentaries and all those things, but uh, to kind of summarize what all he's done, but it's, that's a Mick Foley uh, score. Yeah, there's creative involved and, you know, music and lighting and all that stuff, but because everybody bought into the character, Mick sold the technicians mix sold the writers mix. See, the writers had nothing to do with this, which I don't think endeared me to them. I never was really endeared to the writers, which really bothers me this very day. Wink, wink. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, it, it, it they, 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 he sold them on his, on him. Again, remember he got hired because I need to learn how it was to get my heart broken by a wrestler. Right. And, uh, so cause so then the, the creative staff had heard that from Vince enough. They had no confidence that Mick, Mick was going to do good. They had, they had no expectations because the head man told him that he was a shits. He would never make it. And OJR is going to learn what it's like to get his heart broken by somebody he believes in. Well, guess what? That didn't happen. It didn't I, I, happen. I, and I still believe in Mick Foley, by the way. We should mention that Mick would write in his book that he got a uh, heads up from Bruce Pritchard, Hey, we're going to make a dude love shirt. And that sort of caught him off guard. And then he gets a call 
from Vince that says, Hey pal, how'd you like to be dude love? And he thought he meant for the next pay-per-view and Vince says, no, I'm talking about from now on. And Mick was a little hesitant because the mankind character had been going so well. And Vince said, Mick, I'm not saying we can ever go back to mankind. I just love the whole dude love story. And I know our fans will love it too. It's such a great PR story. Regis and Kathy Lee would love something like this. What do you remember? You know, when you, you, you sort of campaigned for cactus Jack to come in, we come up with the mankind character. You're involved in a sit down interview. It's gotten over like crazy. His feud with the undertaker was successful. And now we're going to try dude love. What'd you think? Well, I like the dude love character. Uh, I, I thought somewhere along the way he'd end up being Mick Foley. Uh, and, and all those characters have come out at certain times under certain situations. And I would, un- and we would understand them as fans because we had been uh, introduced to him the right way and that we had under- got to understand his character. And then we started to believe in it. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, I liked it. I wasn't a big, I'm like Mick. I was a little leery of being the full-time thing for Mick. Uh, and he was right. The, 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 uh, uh mankind thing was, was, it connected. It got, they got over and then he got over dude love. So, uh, and of course, cactus Jack was over. We couldn't even use cactus Jack when he came in. That was, that was forbidden. No, oh, no cactus Jack too much blood and guts. So, okay. So you ain't got to have blood and guts, but he's, yeah, he's, he's got no, he's missing teeth and missing a part of the ear, a lot of scars on his head face, but we ain't got to go there. So I, I, I'm like Mick. I, I was a little, tr- little, uh, little leery of a full-time dude love, but I did love the, 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 the persona a lot. There's a famous, uh, bit that you can see, uh, in some of the documentaries that you were talking about, like, uh, beyond the mat and wrestling with shadows, you, you, a lot of that stuff is being taped here. So you'll see mankind being taught or Mick Foley rather being taught how to walk like dude love by Vince McMahon, which is a fun little tidbit. We should mention that this is the episode of raw where Sid collapses backstage. Uh, Meltzer would say it was due to back problems and, uh, they never showed him close up and they show him in clothes because the auto accident that he was in is legit. And as a result, he hasn't been able to train and look like Sid is supposed to look. And the belief is the match with Vader is almost surely off. What can you tell us though, about Sid collapsing backstage? That was obviously uh, something that would stick out in a lot of people's memory when a coworker just goes down. Yeah, I didn't, it was kind of mysterious because I never was sure. And this many years later, I, I don't remember exactly. So I'm not going to lie to the folks. It was to me as the best I recall, Conrad, it was a little bit mysterious. You know, did, did he, did he, uh, did he, did he pass out due to pain? Uh, or was there something else wrong? You know, what, something like that happens could be a litany of things. And, and most of them aren't good. So that's, a, that was the issue there, you know, uh, and that's the sad part about Sid's career. <clears throat> uh, he had a lot of injury interruptions. Right. And so, uh, but yeah, it was, <clears throat> it was unsettling because we did have high hopes for Sid. I mean, Sid was figured in in a big way. Uh, it's just, you know, one thing after another, just didn't quite get us to the promised land with him, but, uh, he had everything it took to get there, but the injuries and things of that nature, uh, certainly was, was, a, a not a good thing for him. Unfortunately, that episode of raw gets a 2.6 nitro gets a 3.5, uh, something else that, uh, Meltzer would report 
around this time is that the WWE is actually paying or WWF rather at the time is paying eight grand a week to get on channel 31 in New York, just so it can be syndicated in the market. This is an era where ECW, it really exists only in syndication. So they're paying for weekly time, but they're getting, you know, that 2 AM, 3 AM spot. They're not getting prime time, but eight grand a week to get the show on the air. That's a lot of money. Is it not a lot of money? A lot of money, but you had to have it. You had to have the number one market <clears throat> when syndicated television was uh, a thing and a big thing. Uh, you had to have the number one market by hook or crook. And, you know, they, for years they had, uh, in New York, they had a bird nest on the ground because they had, uh, wrestling, they had wrestling, uh, re- superstars was on, that was, uh, Vince and whomever, uh, Randy or. Roddy, uh, perfect. There's several guys that sat in there with Vince on that show. Uh, Heenan, I think was on some, and then on the challenge show was Heenan and me. And then Heenan left. And then monsoon, uh, was, got me, unfortunately for him. I'm kidding. It was great, great work with Gino. I loved him. She'll do. So it was, that, that was the deal they had, but that was on Fox channel five in New York city, Fox five. Noon Saturday was superstars. Noon Sunday was challenge. And the funny part about that whole thing is that challenge started getting better ratings. So I just I did not throw that out there. Just, just saying. We should mention in this era, uh, the WBF makes a, a slight adjustment that makes all the difference. Meltzer would report that, um, starting in September, they're no longer going to be taping raw live every Monday night. And in addition to that, the in your house concept is being dropped effective immediately. And the WWF will go, uh, monthly with now three hour long shows all at a 29 95 price tag. And this is going to start the following month. So September 7th, the ground zero show from Louisville, Kentucky, and the decision to drop this in your house concept at a reduced price is coming on the heels of WCW successfully running monthly three hour long shows at twenty seven ninety five. So if they haven't seen a dip and it's worked for them, why would we not revert to that as well? Um they tried a, a price point of thirty four ninety five for WrestleMania in ninety five, which was a disappointment and some people thought maybe it was a disappointment because of the price. So as a result, they cut it back in ninety six and ninety seven to twenty nine ninety five. But Going to a, a, a monthly three hour long, twenty nine ninety five. This feels like a no brainer since WCW's already had proof of concept, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a no brainer, Conrad. It's business and it, it worked in the same genre, the same audience. So if it worked for WCW and we could refine it or put our own touches on it, why wouldn't it work for us? I remember those, those, uh, private meetings away from Vince where, uh, some of his inner circle just. It would become, uh, you know, pouty faces and, and everybody would be, oh my God, the work's going to kill us. Oh, geez. I'm tired. I'm burned out. I'm fried. Oh, okay. You're talking about Bruce Pritchard. I can tell I'm fried. I'm so tired, please. So then where are you guys at? Well, we're, we're doing a booking meeting at swanky Frank's hot dog stand. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And they had good hot dogs too, by the way. Uh, I no, why, why not? Why not follow follow suit? But that was the whole deal. Was it was that uh, concept? And I said, guys, here's the deal. 
All of us have worked in territories. Every territory that we have worked in had a signature show. It either was once a year, twice a year, once a month, whatever it may be. So that's what we're asking. We're looking at doing here. The hard part is going to be booking the house shows around the pay-per-views. That's why the pay-per-views have got to be booked way in advance so that we can book around them and build to them in the house shows. If that makes any sense to you. So, uh, so then, it, you know, I don't know if it ease their, their burden or not, but you know, it's like, that's what we're here to do guys is work. And you know how this shit is. Hey, we're producing with TV anyway. So, uh, and a lot of television, I get their apprehension, but we had to do that to compete. And, uh, I thought the 2995 price point was pretty, pretty solid. Good idea. We're also cutting expenses as we talked about with the raw adjustment for taping. Meltzer would say WWF has been trying to cut back on expenses, both in running live every week and also in transportation, which depending upon the taping can run 15 to $30,000 per week. And because the Tuesday shows would be booked with a driving distance of the Monday shows, it would cut flight expenses for personnel, not already on the tour during house shows in half with the new format. And there are numerous signs of late that the WWF is taking the financial situation very seriously. For example, on the July 21st show in Halifax, there were many regulars who are always brought to raw tapings that weren't flown in as a cost saving measure. And lots of regular wrestlers were featured instead in taped segments, rather than being brought in to do live new material. Those were who, who were flown in, including Vince McMahon were brought in on a Saturday as opposed to a Sunday to get the benefit of the cost savings of a Saturday night stay over the flight. Mm-hmm. So we're really crunching the numbers here to even see, is it cheaper for us to pay for an extra hotel night and then save on the flights? So this is very much an era where Vince is sharpening the pencil. And you've talked about this before, where people are taking pay cuts. They're taking water coolers out of the building. Of course, the story is going to be way different just 12 months from here, but here in the summer of 97, we're definitely tightening our bootstraps and tightening our belt. Are we not? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's still that ongoing conversations of bankruptcy reorganization. Uh, you know, things had to turn around and, and as a business, it's not, you're throwing your hands. It's okay. We quit. We got to reorganize it. You don't, that's a, that just starts the battle when you reorganize, uh, in my view, it, it's, it's just not, you're not quitting. You just got to reorganize. You got to reset. You got to, you got to get something else going. And I think that's kind of what we did there. Uh, but I know if going over to, uh, that was a funny deal, man. We went to, we went to Halifax and to do raw, got there on Saturday and going from Connecticut to Nova Scotia ain't easy. Uh, and there were long layovers and going through customs and all this stuff. And then traveling with, with Jim Cornette, who hates flying. I mean, he's scared of it. Makes him ill. It's not funny. But we made it. We we made fun of him. Of course, that's what we do in wrestling. It's sad sometimes. Uh, but I remember all of us staying in a hotel. I know that we got there on Saturday. That the shows had not been written yet because uh, everybody was too tired. And then we wrote the shows uh, in a boardroom at the hotel. And on that fateful afternoon, uh, Cornette and Kevin Dunn had words in the meeting. And I had, I had to help Corny get back to his room. <laughs> he, he, became my, he became my guy. I asked, I asked Bruce sometimes, how come he's my guy now? You know him as long as I have, he's my guy, you know? So you get that sleepish, sheepish grin. Well, you get the heat 
And I did. But Cornette and Kevin Dunn had strong words in that, that day about some philosophical issue that they disagreed upon. And, uh, and then uh, the next thing I know, I remember from that trip, Conrad was at the, the local madam uh, for the local brothel there in Halifax, uh, had a string of ladies, and she saw all the wrestlers staying in the same hotel, all the staff staying in the same hotel. She just brought her women over to the hotel, and it's like having a big brothel. She was down the lobby on her phone, and there was all kinds of business deals being done there. And everybody couldn't wait to get the meetings over. Of course, the talent had nothing to do. They were just off. That's leaving wrestlers with a lot of free time and a good deal. So it was an interesting thing between the, the Halifax hookers and, uh, the, 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 uh, Hey, Hey, the, Hey Rube at the meeting with Cornette and, and Kevin, uh, and then the, the tra- travel and look, when you, when you fly into those places too, Conrad, remember this, this, this would not suit guys like me and you real well, cause they're on little bitty planes. Right. Not cool, brother. Not cool. Hey, let so, me ask, uh, is this fight of this situation with, with Kevin Dunn and, and Jim Cornette, is this where he starts mocking Kevin's teeth? Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Uh, bad, you know, God damn you. Don't make me come over this table. You son of a bitch. Yeah. If you haven't seen Jim Cornette go off on Kevin Dunn and do the impersonation and the impression it's all over YouTube. Thanks to our friends at kayfabe commentaries. It's uh, woo, it's something else. Now this is he's another. Ha- he's, he's stiff, man. He's stiff. Oh yeah. They, you know, and and I gotta tell you, sometimes I got some of Cornette's heat. It's like I didn't bring him. Vince hired him. So, uh, but you know, I was caretaker, I guess. Cornette's a brilliant guy. That's that's a sad part about that whole deal at WWE. If he had not had a fear, a, a tremendous fear of flying, Jim Cornette could have been a phenomenal asset. To WWE with his knowledge, his creativity, his fundamentals and so forth and so on. Uh, but he just couldn't stand the culture there. And so he lost a good guy by, uh, you know, he, he just couldn't handle it. We didn't make it easier for him either. It's like, uh, the deal where we had the, the, the matches in Atlantic city and his car, he drove his car down there cause he can drive, he'll drive to fucking San Antonio if he had to. So they're, they're doing a scene and he's at the grill position watching. And they're, they're in the back doing a live fight with the Mariquas and somebody. And they bust out his back window of his car. Uh, as I recall, it was a back window, uh, windshield, whatever, the uh, rear view mirror, rear, rear view window, whatever. And he saw, he's watching it on the monitor I, and I happened to see it. And it was, it was so damn funny, but it wasn't because he got so mad. He got in his car. And he drove back to Connecticut from Atlantic city with the window busted out. Just, you know, we didn't make life easy for Cornette. That's not, that wasn't, I'm not proud of that quite frankly, but anyway, uh, the Halifax trip was pretty uh, interesting. The other thing about the Halifax trip was, uh, I think Vince wore a hockey Jersey so that maybe, you know, I don't know what he's trying to make good to the audience or something, but he wore a hockey Jersey. So then he and Brett had this little issue at ringside where they got into this faux hockey fight. So then Vince wasn't aware of what was going to happen. I don't sure Brett might not have been. He just reacted, reacted. He pulled the hockey jersey over Vince's head, like they do in the hockey fights. They started waylaying and the goddamn crowd. You thought, man, we all got to, you know, we we're this is the greatest thing we've ever seen in our entire life. Our Canadian hero is beating the holy hell out of the, of the head honcho of the WWE, uh, that evil Mr. McMahon. 
and it was some fun. And, and we were surrounded. Do you think that the, uh, who do you think the security there, Conrad, were favoring that night? That's the uniform, uh, officers, the Canadian boys, or us Yahoo's in the States, you know, the answer to that. So we were, and then here to top that off when the show was over, it had a lot of heat. Uh, it was a hot show. We had, to, we didn't take a car from our hotel, uh, to the arena. We walked, <clears throat> it's like, you know, 10 minute walk, baby. Uh, but we're following. We look like the Pied Piper. I mean, these Southern drunk Canadians want to have some fun. So, you know, so we made sure that Vince was surrounded and, and off we went. So we got there un, un, unmolested, but it could have been real, real ugly real quick. Uh, but thank God it wasn't. Let's, uh, let's do talk about this, uh, show. It's another sellout, 8,544 fans, uh, another gate, which is a record 116 grand, $344. So by a couple hundred bucks, it beat San Antonio the prior week. Um, eventually Vince would introduce the heart foundation. Brett said he had a nightmare last week when he was in San Antonio, San Antonio. So it's good to be back in God's country. And did you ever notice that the USA is shaped like a giant toilet bowl. It's probably because Americans are full of crap. So we continue, you know, this, this same storyline and eventually Shawn Michaels comes out and, um, you know, there's been lots of people, you know, the, the dirt sheets, if you will, saying that Sean, uh, maybe has a knee injury. Maybe it's not all the way legit. There's always a whisper whenever Sean would have an injury in this era. So to prove everybody wrong or to get them fired up and prove him right. He comes out on this episode and does a backflip off the top rope, landing on his feet. And of course his knee isn't wrapped and, uh, the crowd's chanting. They are not happy for him. Uh, but he's announcing that he is going to be refereeing the Brett undertaker match at SummerSlam. That's an interesting little twist. I guess yeah. the, uh, the thinking is, Hey, we don't have enough time to really build a regular story for him for a match, or maybe his knee might not be all the way where we want it to be, or he wants it to be to give a Shawn Michaels level performance. So let's just have him be the referee. What'd you think of that piece of book? Loved it. Loved the idea. Uh, I thought it was very good booking. Uh, it added another, another element to the, uh, to the storyline with Brett and Taker and the title. Uh, we all knew Sean was, you know, looking Jones to be the champion again. And, be back on top. We knew that his issues of Brett were going to be everlasting. Or we thought at that point, uh, undertaker was the legendary guy. That's, you know, that's the champ. And you know, he ain't gonna go down easy. If he goes down at all, it had so many, a lot of ways to play that, that three-way deal where Sean was a ref. I thought it was really timely booking and a good use of our resources. And, uh, and at the end of the day, it worked. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the main event of this episode of raw. Uh, it's a flag match. It's going to be Brett and Owen and bulldog taking on the undertaker, Steve Austin and dude love flags on the pole. Uh, the finish is going to see Brian Pillman come from under the ring and knock down the undertaker as he's trying to climb the pole to get the American flag. So the opposite side of the ring, Brett is then allowed to grab the Canadian flag and win. But what's interesting is the show goes long. It goes well past when the show was supposed to finish. So if you set your VCR, which is what we were all using back in the day, uh, you miss the conclusion, but you're on commentary and you're announcing that you're going to stay with the main event until it has a conclusion all night. If we need to, 
But as you're saying that USA runs a crawl around the bottom of the screen that says <laughs> Lafem Nikita will start in 10 minutes. And then five minutes later, it says Lafem Nikita will start in five minutes. And right on time, the finish happens and Lafem Nikita started in five minutes. What do you think of that? Sort of st- stupid. <laughs> it shows that the uh, left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. And it shows that the switchers and the people in the, in the headquarters there for USA were just trying to get the show in the air. They, didn't, they were done with us. We're st- it's the same old wrestling bullshit you get into all the time, but prejudices. Oh, it's just wrestling. Who cares? Uh, and we care. I say we care. So uh, that was very, uh, uh, that was ill timed. And it was nowadays, then it was piss you off because it is, they just crapped all over your story and your, and your narrative. Uh, nowadays it is, you kind of just kind of chuckle that's how could we, how could they have been that stupid? They weren't listening to what we were saying. So they, they exposed what they exposed the, uh, the, 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 uh, rabbit in the hat or whatever, you know, just it's not good. It's, it's, it, it defeated what we were trying to accomplish because there was no communication. They were not li- the switchers. The people in the headquarters were not listening to our show. We talked about, uh, Sid earlier, uh, the prior week there in San Antonio collapsing. Well, he's not at this show, uh, here in Canada. So as a result, Meltzer would report in the August 4th observer that Sid was officially fired by the company. And he would write, it's almost mind boggling that a star of that magnitude in this kind of wartime situation would be fired. But WWF officials apparently felt they had no alternative in citing their inability to get any straight answers from him concerning his condition and injuries and when he'd be available under normal circumstances, WCW would try to bring a guy in with the illusion that it's another major jump, but Sid has a lot of heat with a lot of people in Atlanta, not to mention his track record in the industry. So he probably has heat because he stabbed a motherfucker. Uh, but chat me up. Uh, how does this firing come to be? And, and what do you remember about having to let Sid go? I assume it was you who made the call. Yeah, it, it was inevitable. You know, uh, he didn't, we couldn't get him healthy. And there was always something that, that, uh, obstacle to, to either go over around or through. And again, you know, Vince, uh, uh, you know, didn't have the. He didn't have the time. He didn't have, he didn't have, he didn't, he didn't take the time to really think it out. I don't think it was one of those deals where somebody said, well, we should just get rid of him. He's never going to get over. He's never going to get healthy, blah, blah, blah. And so of course, and JR called said, and tell him we're letting him go. That was it. So, uh, but you know, I said this all the time, Conrad, we talk about our shows that we, you and I are doing and that we talked about earlier in the show, you know, the Charlotte thing coming up in Rochester, New York in September as well. And, and of course, Charlotte's in August. Uh, dang man. Uh, it's, it's just you, the most, the most cherished asset that a wrestler can have and maybe any employee, maybe any, uh, significant other is that you are reliable. And because Sid had these issues that, that arose, not all his fault, I'm sure, but the end result was. For him to be figured as, well, we're talking about just a, a top guy. We're talking about the top guy. Right. Uh, you, you can't rely on the top guy and you can't keep him healthy. And, you know, he, he can't work as many dates as his predecessors did in that role. You got to reevaluate that whole situation. So that's kind of how that was. It wasn't mean spirited or no animosity, you know, uh, but you got to, 
sometimes you just gotta, you gotta fish or cut bait and we cut bait. We should remind everybody that, you know, people just sort of say, oh, well, Sid, blah, 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 whatever. This is Sid a few months after he headlined WrestleMania, a few months after he was in the main event with the undertaker in Chicago at WrestleMania 13, you know, just a handful of months later, he's fired because, you know, they just don't think he's reliable. And I guess people found out at the raw reunion that maybe the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. He didn't, uh, he was booked apparently, or that's what I heard. I said, you know, I know I was, I know how that worked with me, but I didn't get in anybody else's business, but yeah, that's just it. Reliability folks. I don't, if you got a, your, 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 you want your woman to be, or your man to be reliable. You want your kids to be reliable. You want, you want to be, if you got people that work for you, you want them to be reliable. It's such a big deal. Cause if you're not there, you can't help me. Well, and, uh, that was our issue with Sid cause he had everything in the world. Look, uh, you know, he was athletic for a big guy, six, nine. So I, I did, it was sad how that all worked out and, and we'll never know how great he could have been quite frankly, cause we never got to see it. Let's go to the go home episode of raw. As we build towards SummerSlam 97, it's July 28th. We're back in Pittsburgh. Such a phenomenal promo from this. As soon as I say that, I know exactly what Bret Hart said that night. It's another record, folks. I hope you're seeing the, the pattern here. It's another sellout, 12,588 fans. This time, it's the biggest gate in Raw history for the third consecutive week. But instead of being, you know, a hundred and something thousand, but, uh, you know, south of 120, how about 184 grand here at the gate? And the show opens with a Bret Hart interview. And here's the line. He says, if you were going to give the United States an enema, you'd stick the hose right here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> what a great line. Yeah. It sounds like a Bobby Heenan line, right? It does. It's great. Great. That was, Brett was a, such a, a subtle, classy heel. He didn't have to be, he didn't have to be a, a coarse. He didn't have to be profane and he didn't even have to raise his voice that many times. He did occasionally, which made have, have more of an impact, but he was a really a great heel. He really truly was because it's the same theory. Great heels are only great heels if they have great baby faces to work with. It works both ways, by the way. Right. And, and we had all the cards there, man. We had a, we had a, in one faction, we had five main event level heels. Right. And in, in one faction. So, uh, it was a, he was so underrated sometimes. And I said, so how can you underrate Bret Hart? Well, people remember him as his great baby face, a wrestling baby face, a tremendous in-ring performer, as good as I've ever seen. Fundamentally as sound and logical as anybody I've ever seen. And, uh, but being a heel took another art form. It took another positioning, much like we talked about Mick Foley being dude, love and mankind and uh, cactus Jack. It takes skill to do all those things in a different presentation. And Brett was just phenomenal with it. He was, a, he, he was such a big part of that, the su success of that whole Canadian American rivalry so much. It can't be denied. I think his best year ever was 1997. And here he's already setting things up with the Patriot saying that when he debuted by coming out and standing next to Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels, that would be like Bill Clinton standing next to the Unabomber and Richard Simmons. Uh, and then Jr. does an interview where, uh, Bret Hart is, is gonna, um, learn that he's not going to be disciplined by his attack on Vince McMahon last week. And a new commissioner, uh, has been appointed by the WWF and that's gorilla monsoon. And he may reassess that punishment after SummerSlam and Brett reiterates that 
if he fails to win the WWF title, uh, he's, he's never going to wrestle on American soil again, but he says that the powers that be are trying to screw him here by letting Shawn Michaels call the match. So he says that if Shawn Michaels screws him out of the match, he'll be out of a title and then Michaels can sit at home for 10 years and find his smile. Really a home run promo, uh, probably some of the best stuff that Brett did in his entire career. And Conrad, it's another case in point when you have motivated talents that are entrepreneurial spirit that get it, their promo that they will deliver is going to be always going to be better than a promo that you write for them to memorize on the day of the show. Uh, and, and then to go out and execute it just, it's not even a close comparison. Well, maybe, no, no, there's no, maybe Bret Hart did not have a, a script writer and, uh, he, he did it on his, he, he felt the promo and he delivered that promo. So, uh, that, that, that's another piece of the missing, the missing art form that we were enjoying in that era was we had so many guys that were motivated to get their spot and get over and become famous and become rich that they were willing to think about their promos and didn't expect to get a script handed to them when they walked in the door, bring something like uh, junkyard dog said, don't come to the, don't be like a cabbage. We all head no rear end, uh, whatever that means, but they brought something to the dance. No doubt. And, uh, there's something else on this show that really stood out to me that I've wanted to ask you about a great little skit here where Hunter Hearst Helmsley scheduled to wrestle Vader. But mankind comes out in a WWF cameraman outfit and attacks Hunter until China takes him down and starts pounding on him. And then it winds up with Hunter and mankind brawling in the stands. I love their feud here, but mankind dressing up in a cameraman's outfit. That's the first time we've seen that. That's awesome. Yeah. That was a nice way of getting Mick out there and a creative way, creative placement for the talent. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a nice little piece of business. We had so many. And I, and I think the talents in that era too seem to be, now I'm not in WWE any longer, as most people know, uh, but I don't know how it is there now. If the talents are, are actively engaging and pitching ideas or are looking at ways to make their character better and get over more because that just makes the writers and the bookers or the Paul Heyman's, Eric Bischoff's, whomever it may be, uh, look better, uh, cause something worked. And at the end of the day, we should all be pulling the rope in the same direction. So, uh, that's, that's kind of what I, I, I thought of that. I think the, I don't know. I, I just thought Brett was the, the, straw, the straw that started to drink and he made everybody around him raise their game because you knew that if you're going to get into a match with him, Steve Austin says, he thinks that the best match he ever had on in WWE was against Brett Hart at WrestleMania 13 the year before. So well, not the year before, right? Or that year, was it that year? Anyway, uh, and so Brett was, Brett was the guy and he should get more credit for that whole success of that, uh, U S Canada thing than anybody in the formula along with Austin. Let's keep it rolling here and talk about this same Monday night raw. We see another Brockus promo. Uh, uh is this a, a pet project of Vince McMahon? I mean, we never yeah. really saw much of Brockus until they got knocked the fuck out in the brawl for all. What was up yeah. with Brockus? Uh, he's bodybuilder. Big muscles, nice tan, looked good in eight by 10. Couldn't work a lick. Uh, but Vince liked the body and, uh, you know, there's where problems come to play sometimes. Hey, look, you got to know when to, you don't ever confront Vince. You always converse with him. 
that's just the way you should do business with any of your bosses you have or your spouses or converse. Don't yell and scream, just converse. Uh, but I, I uh, Brockus is one of those guys where somebody, and don't think that we didn't. And uh, there were several of us that said, this ain't going to work. Well, let's give it a chance. You know, I think what Vince is looking at may have been a slight downgrade from maybe the persona of Ivan Putsky. You know, Ivan Polish didn't speak a lot of English, blah, blah, blah. Wink, wink, wink. Uh, Brockus, I think was German. I know one thing, uh, his wife probably was more popular around the office than him. Uh, and, uh, but he just, you know, he's one of those guys that had to have, you know, eating 10 chicken breasts a day and, you know, drinking eight gallons of water or whatever, uh, all good things, I suppose, but nonetheless, no skill, hey, none. I can't help, but follow up. He said his, his wife may have been more popular around the office. Am I supposed to read anything into that? I don't know. I don't think so. She wouldn't. I mean, was she nailing Vince or something? No, I don't think so, but, uh, that's what you're getting at. Right. Well, I mean, uh, he said she was popular around the office. I mean, that's, well, a, she was, she was there all the time. She got to know all the folks in talent relations. Uh, she hung around a lot. She didn't know that wise at that, in that era. And maybe it's the way it should be. I'm not taking sides on that. I'm not gonna get an issue of gender equality and all that stuff, but, uh, she's, uh, she got, she was just at the office a lot. She was friendly. She didn't, she was, she was from another country. They were, we're trying to help her get acclimated. You know, the thing about working for Vince, at least how it worked for me, I could tell him in my own calm way, one-on-one, -on -one, this is not going to work in my opinion. And here's why. And he would either say, that's a good point, Jr. but I'm going to go with it anyway. Fine. At least he heard my honesty. And then, uh, then we tried all we can to make. Vince's ideas work right. and protect, protect him in that regard. So, uh, but this was just never, it was never going to happen. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Joe Bednarski, who was Ivan Pesky was a Texas guy, a football player, good athlete, could communicate. Well, the thing about Brockus is that, uh, he couldn't, he wasn't a good communicator. He couldn't speak it well at good English, but much like me. So, you know, I, I think, uh, it just was. Vince was, but Vince was absolutely, uh, mesmerized by his body, his look. And, uh, you know, he's, he's one big walking blood vein with a good tan, but uh, he just, I don't know. And I don't, you know, here's the thing about to, to speak to my point after he left WWE, as best I can recall, so I can correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, uh, he kind of, he vanished. He didn't get another shot with anybody significantly. He may have got some bookies here or there and on because has a WWE TV behind him, but he never succeeded in the business. So, but I think Vince just liked the physique and, and he kind of liked those uh, bodybuilder guys, you know, that he is attracted. That's the WBF and all that stuff. That was his deal. He has his hobby. So that's why, how that happened. It was just what a good idea. Let's uh, talk about an interesting idea. We're putting Devin storm and ACE darling on a raw here. I mean, I, I'm all for, you know, WWE embracing indie talent. Talk to me about how this match came to be though. It does feel a little out of place at the time. There were some people in creative that uh, thought that Devin storm had a, had a shot. And actually, by the way, he, he's a smart guy, educated guy, uh, and a good hand, uh, and I, I always, he was underrated, but he came in with no fanfare. He came in with that indie label 
And the indie label then isn't the same as it is now. So uh, that's kind of how that worked. It just didn't, wasn't good. Uh, but he was a good hand. Getting a win on television, you know, the idea was he's going to be a underneath guy. We'll give him a couple of wins. So he means something when somebody bigger than him wins, beats him. But that's kind of where that was. It was a, you know, I think Cornette had a little bit to do with that. He liked uh, Ace Darling and Devin Storm, as I recall. But uh, that was the deal. New faces, solid hands, uh, no, not going to embarrass you. Get them a couple of wins, increase their equity so that when they get into the next role of putting over a quote-unquote star, the star gets a, a win of some level of significance. How about what's up next? Can Shamrock and the British Bulldog have an arm wrestling match? Bulldog is going to headbutt Shamrock, destroy him with chair shots, and then pour dog food all over him. Uh, former UFC competitor here, Ken Shamrock, who uh, says, Hey, here's a creative tonight, pal. We're going to cover you in Alpo. Uh, I don't know who, who delivered the message. Some, uh, but uh, yeah, he wouldn't, Kenny would not have an issue with it, I don't believe. I don't think he had an issue with it, so I could recall. Uh, he, I'll tell you, we talked about Ken Shamrock before. He was so close to getting to the next level and occupying a spot there for a long time. If he had not decided to go back to MMA, uh, but he was a team player. Uh, and all I was going to do is anything you could do to get, to really piss Kenny off and, and where he'd almost, almost, or not quite, but almost go out of character was good. Was money. Cause boy, he, he had a great pissed off body, English facial expression, guttural screams, anger. He man, it manifests itself really well with him. So I was still a big Kenny Sam, Shamrock fan, quite frankly, but, uh, that was, a, that was the deal with Kenny. He just, he, he was a team player. He's doing, he's going along with it. And I think he kind of liked working with bulldog. They kind of had some things in common, two strong guys. Bulldog knew where the rubber met the road because nobody's going to, you know, try shamrock just for the hell of it. That, that would probably not been very smart it, as tough as bulldog was and as strong. I don't like his chances against shamrock. What an interesting time in the company. The next thing is Goldust and rockabilly. They go to a no contest when rockabilly slaps Michael Moore, the former boxing champ at ringside. Of course, Moore knocks him out. Then Pillman would attack Goldust and try to stuff a dress from a mannequin down his throat. This is a, a wild time in professional wrestling. Your main event though, we see the Patriot get a win over Bret Hart, nine minutes and 23 seconds. Sean's doing the commentary. And, uh, after a ref bump, uh, Patriot gets the win with a schoolboy. those damn schoolboys. nine and a half minutes though. What a debut here for the Patriot. I mean, he's, he's aligned with, with stone cold and Shawn Michaels and Sid, and he's getting a win over Bret Hart on TV. Uh, we're, we're, we're gearing him up for the big time. Absolutely. Well, you know, Dell was a, as we said earlier, he was, he was a great a- amateur athlete, all American football player, defensive player. Uh, at South Carolina, uh, nice guy, well-spoken, you know, uh, and we, he had the package, he had the size, he had the athleticism, he had a very unique persona. So he was, and he fit right in, as we mentioned earlier, that, that niche that was going to connect the U S versus Canada, uh, Canada, uh, uh storyline. So yeah, we had high hopes for Dell. It's just, you know, here's another, you got another guy that's got some injuries that, you know, that kind of became an issue. And then I think because of his, his, uh, his injuries, uh, Conrad, I think that 
maybe painkillers might have been his uh, downfall or some sort of muscle relaxer or something. He was, he was banged up is what I'm trying to say. And because the system in the wrestling business at that time, and still in some places uh, to this day, in some areas, if you're hurt, you don't work, you don't get paid. That was the old school way of doing it. You don't get paid if you don't work. So guys would work even when they shouldn't have been, because if they didn't, they weren't getting any money. Same scenario when the, when the women wrestlers would come to work in the territory days and they bring four men and four men would have to sit out for two weeks while the women were booked. And then the women on the tour were getting all kinds of shit from the guys because the guys for their buddies were unbooked and they weren't being going to feed their family that week. It's sad that it's that close as far as your income, but that's what it was. But Dell was a good guy and he just, I wish he could have had his run because he, he had something. He was a good athlete, man. And I, and I thought that, you know, he finally got to WWE. He finally got to the level he wanted to get at as a, as an athlete and as a wrestler. It just, it never materialized, but we sure to hell tried. Well, and you were trying to beat Nitro in the ratings, but you're unsuccessful here again. Despite it being a sold-out show, Raw does a 2.9, Nitro does a 3.4. It's got to be a little disappointing to lose in the ratings, but when you see you're setting records every single week, uh, I guess it's time to just put your head down and focus on your business, which you would clearly indicate, hey, we're doing something right. We're, we're drawing record houses. Right. Uh, a lot of analogies you can draw to that, but the bottom line of it is is that uh, we're doing – a lot of good things. We're getting some talents over. We're, we're building, uh, some unique storylines, uh, that uh, seemingly have found a home. They've taken root. So, uh, we felt like we were doing a lot of good things. And you know, when you get to TV, uh, our guys are call in talent. Hey, JR, what's our ratings this week? Austin was bad about that. Not bad about it, but he's, you know, not, and then you, you get the normal, ah, dang, I don't know what we got to do. I said, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. That's what we got to do. We're doing the right thing. We're running the right offense. We're calling the right plays. We just got to overtake these guys. So, uh, and that's going to come from consistency. And so that's kind of, I told that to the guys every week, just keep doing what we're doing. Outwork the son of bitches, work harder, work, work snugger. And let's hopefully some of these storylines are going to get over. And by the way, you have a say in your storylines. If you choose not to participate, then you're probably not going to be making the money you want to make. And most of them would understand that and agree. So, uh, it was frustrating and, and God knows we didn't think it was going to last 83 weeks. No, but thank God it did for the podcast. Uh, so <laughs> let's, let's talk about uh, a meeting here that, that I'm sure you've got an opinion on. Melster would report that Heyman had a meeting on July 31st at Titan towers with Vince McMahon, Bruce Pritchard, and Jim Ross to open up the lines of communication. While nothing definite as far as a date and angle being confirmed, McMahon apparently told Heyman that if he had any ideas on angles that would benefit both companies to present them to him and both sides talked a lot about the September 22nd live raw from Madison square garden saying that ECW will definitely be a part of that show at this point seems to be premature, but it is definitely a possibility sources in the WWF claim that Heyman had been on the payroll for quite a while before the relationship cooled off. When, according to the WWF side, Heyman no-showed the June 30th show in Des Moines, Iowa, where he was scheduled to start as a color commentator on shotgun Saturday night. The WWF had claimed that Heyman told them to keep that news quiet because he didn't want his wrestlers to find out before he told them himself. He never told them and never showed up <laughs> and never did the voiceovers. And he still insists that he never agreed to do it. So chat me up. Uh, obviously this is uh, a sore subject, but you were there. 
what really happened? Well, I think pretty much what Paul said, you know, he, Paul sometimes can be, uh, well, heck, you know, he's a brilliant guy as we all know, but he, I wouldn't want him doing my taxes. Uh, sometimes his organizational skills, uh, like others that we know are need work. So, and I also think that he may have thought that, uh, broadcasting on shotgun Saturday night, which is a, we had no idea if it's going to be around for another week, another month, another year, whatever. It certainly was not Monday night raw. It was not the a show. And Paul felt impressed deservedly. So that he should be a part of a, of a bigger, more higher profile presentation, but that's just Paul Paul's Paul, you know, but Paul should have told his, his, his team what he was doing, but he had, cause he had, he had beaten their heads so fervently and so aggressively it's us against the world. And the world in wrestling at that time was the WWF. That was the world. So for Paul to, uh, partake in some assets and funds and funding, and then, then to find himself on doing television, uh, on a secondary show didn't fit his, uh, his, his plan. And I can understand his reason for that, quite frankly, but he'll drop the ball. Sometimes he didn't, he didn't want to face his troops that here's where we are. And he knew that it was getting closer and closer to that day. And all I was going to mean was I was going to hire as many of his guys as that wanted to come to work for us that were good. And I did, and he knew it was going to happen. I didn't do it that behind his back. He knew. So, and the talent, I'm sure the talent told him cause they're leaving. So it was just how that was. I think he probably thought he was just been underutilized and he didn't want to get caught in a jackpot with his team. And he still had hopes that ECW was, going to, was still going to survive, which unfortunately it did not. What do you think Vince McMahon thought of Paul Heyman in 1997? Oh, kind of, a. Oh, I don't know. Uh, uh, he's, he was a brilliant, a brilliant, uh, albeit annoying human being in Vince's eyes. Hey, look, I've been with Paul for since day one, man. When the booking committee at WCW wanted nothing to do with him because he's smarter than most of the guys on the committee. Uh, and I put him as my partner on TBS, which gave him his big break. And he was a great partner. I, I have no regrets about that. I'd work with him anytime, anywhere. Uh, but I don't think Vince ever really sold on Paul. You know, he'd make he'd, same thing. He'd, I'm sure Bruce has told stories, but in the, in the, in the story in your podcast about Jr. on, uh, on with you and Bruce, you know, how I was treated or mocked or made fun of, uh, it's not a secret. Every writer that's been through there in that era can tell you stories about that. And, and, uh, even to the point where Vince goes on TV one time and impersonates me where he's wearing a hat and he's got a, he's talking like his face is, uh, paralyzed. Like I had the Bell's palsy. So that's how that worked. I think thought some of the same things about Paul cheap suits, you know, uh, Paul is a much better dresser now than he was. Then I saw a picture that he was on McMahon's plane the other day and he, he named all the clothing he was wearing, the, the name brand stuff. Let me promise you, 1997, he was going to uh, either Men's Warehouse, not a bad store, <laughs> or, or he was going to, uh, what's that other place? That the, uh, the Coat Place, the Burlington Coat Factory. <laughs> so I think Vince, you know, it's just Vince, you know, he, he kind of make fun of Paul and is behind his back. and But we all knew that he's a smart son of a gun, man. He still is. And, uh, when you and I talked about Bischoff and, and Heyman getting their, their promotions, getting, uh, 
those jobs from SmackDown and Raw, uh, you know, the key thing there was Bischoff, Eric and, and Bruce, were both, or excuse me, Eric and Paul would both have great ideas. But if Biff said let them run with their call their plays, it ain't gonna matter. So, but Paul's a brilliant guy, no doubt. He just he was kind of a caricature of himself. You know, uh, he's been known to stretch the truth, been known to embellish big time. And people say, well, how about you, Jr.? Because that's always the deal now in social media. Well, Jr. said this about Paul. What about Jr.? Well, Jr. stretched the truth. Yeah. And I have embellished. I did that for a living. But uh, Paul did it in behind the scenes. He didn't want to do it on camera. So I love working with him. I, he was always, uh, and I get pissed off at him. I've been as mad at Paul Heyman as I've ever been as mad as anybody in the wrestling business because he was annoying. I called him one time on TV. I said, you're a pimple on the ass of life. And I don't know where that came from, but I, I believed at the time. Well, uh, where did this come from? There was a rumor that it was discussed and you can shoot this down or say, ah, we kicked it around Rob Van Dam and Sabu against Tommy dreamer and Sandman at SummerSlam. Was that ever discussed? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Cause that was the, uh, that was th- those four guys were generally perceived, uh, as the, as the, uh, top of the mark there in ECW. And of course, you know, Taz and the Dudleys and, and, and you know, the other guys, Shane Douglas, they had a good crew there. Uh, but they were kind of considered that, uh, the top of the line. And the thing we thought was because of who they were, that we would get a great match out of them because they would want to steal the show and do everything they could to be sensationalistic and have a memorable match. So it was discussed and I, and here's the deal there. The star of that whole quartet is, was RVD. Right. RVD was always the guy. Hey, look, I'm not knocking Tommy Dreamer or Sandman, great veterans. Tommy still works his ass off at House of Hardcore, always pulling for him. Uh, but man, uh, RVD was the star of that quartet in our, and, and the, in the, in the office's eyes at WWE. And uh, so everything, anything we would have done with ECW would have been also to make sure that we took care of RVD in the process. Let's talk about SummerSlam. We're finally here. Huge sellout. 20,213 fans sold out about a week in advance. Uh, the 17,361 paying fans paid an incredible gate, 523 grand, another 202,000 in merch. It breaks all the records at the former Meadowlands arena. The previous record was the 89 SummerSlam with 17,202 paying fans. So we've got more here and that gate was 326,000. So. This is going to be not only the record here, but the second largest of 97 in North America, trailing only WrestleMania at that point. But to top it all off, you have a big corporate sponsor as well. Stridex. Jim, were you ever involved in any of the uh, sponsorship pitches or presentations for any of these shows? Well, luckily I was not involved in any of those pitches. Uh, you know, we had PR things. Somebody would come to the office and, you know, cause my office is next to Vince's. And they come in to see him. He didn't like meeting strangers. He still doesn't. So sometimes I was asked to be in meetings just to support him. And, uh, which is fine with me. I, I got a great education from that, but, uh, no, I wasn't involved in that, but we started getting more. That was new money. And that was what, you know, as a businessman, like yourself with your mortgage business, all your podcast stuff, we're always looking for new money, looking for new sponsors. Everything. So it's, that was always the ongoing search, but I wasn't involved in any of that, but, uh, we had a good sales department that did, 
uh, and did a good job with it too. Uh, once we started getting into sponsorships, it got to be pretty, pretty damn lucrative. Let's talk about the first match. I think a lot of people remember this one. It's the big blue cage, uh, which is going to be not long for this world. Of course, <laughs> hell in a cell is going to be ushered in a couple months from now. And, uh, that sort of becomes the new norm. But we've got the big blue here for Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley at the time to take on Mankind. They're going to get a long time here, 16 minutes and 25 seconds. A pretty spectacular spot in the match here. Helmsley gives Mankind a superplex off the very top of this eight-foot cage, the same bump that we saw Hulk Hogan and Big Boss Man do back in 1989. Eventually, uh, Helmsley has an opportunity to win and escape the cage, but he changes his mind just to slam mankind's head in the cage door, which is just brutal. Uh, and then we've got another fun spot where mankind's climbing to the top of the cage and it looks like he's ready to climb down, but instead he opens his shirt and reveals that he's got a little heart drawn on his chest. Like dude, love takes the big spot. Uh, of course, when mankind gets laid out on the floor, uh, dude, love music is going to play, which revives him. He starts doing the strut to the back two and a half stars. what do you think of this 16 and a half minute cage match here to get the show kicked off? Interesting placement. <clears throat> I thought it's interesting placement, uh, to start to show the cage match. And you know, those guys are going to have a old school, more oriented cage match. I think one of the worst things that pro wrestling has done is to allow a, an escape from the cage, uh, as a criteria to win the match, <clears throat> the whole concept behind with cage matches, as the fans know, it's a blow off match. It's something to finalize a long standing issue. It's believable. It makes sense. All that good stuff. So, uh, and, and, and I want to mention too about the blue cage, the blue cage. When I first got there, I got in town relations So two things that talents told me that they'd like me to address was the rings because they're too hard and the, the big blue cage and that big blue cage is they, they called it the Hogan Bundy cage. A lot of guys were still there. Pat Patterson. Some of those guys, some of the older ages, Korea, George, the animal, uh, monsoon. It was, a, it was a blue cage was built for the big guys, 300 pounders. And that called up the illustration of Bundy and Hogan. So we got rid of the blue cage because it was hurting people. It's stiff. There's no give, no flexibility. And then we also changed the rings out to where the rings had more, uh, I want to say buoyancy, but they were a little bit more bump friendly. Uh, but it was a very unique match. You know, Conrad, we are various shows we've done here. We, we pointed out the fact that Hunter triple H and Mick have great, have, they've had, they had great chemistry. Yeah. I don't remember the two some bitches ever having a bad match and to where their matches were not just good. They're more often not great. So, uh, I was really glad that we put that match on first because I knew that they were going to set a, a standard for that night. That was going to be hard to top because they both had strong egos. They're both students of the game. They're both lifelong WWF fans. So I thought, boy, this is, this is a great idea. So that's kind of where we went with that. I, I remember us talking about it, but it didn't quite frankly, it didn't seem to fit anywhere else. Right. It wasn't going to close the show, right? Which, which ideally if, uh, as a booker, you'd want your, your big cage match between two, two of your top stars to close the show under normal circumstances. That's not, that wasn't the case. 
So I, I liked it. And I always liked those guys work. Uh, I think that mankind helped two guys immensely. Shawn Michaels and triple H triple H came, comes, you know, he's from Greenwich. He's a snob and he's, he, he doesn't come off as the uh, guy you're, you're dodged in the alley. He, he evolved to that. But when he first started getting rolling, he was just, you know, uh, rich guy, snob from Greenwich, basically Vince playing off Vince. Uh, and then he made me believe that triple H is a whole hell of a lot tougher than the perception of him had been big, big boost for triple H the same thing. If you go back and think about the match, uh, another match that worked that, that way was, uh, Sean and Sean had matches with Mick same deal. Uh, much like Sean's match with the undertaker in hell in a cell. My point is there are certain guys that ha- were able to take a, a wrestler out of his comfort zone. I.e. Sean Michaels is perceived as a high flyer finesse wrestler, you know, really smooth, all this stuff, steamboat like. And, and, uh, so we, 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 in that match through, hopefully through our commentary helped some that we made Sean a tough little bastard. And that built as we went forward, same thing with the, with, uh, with Hunter. My point is, is that you find guys that have great chemistry and he, and he want to challenge them that we got to have, you know, Mick knew that we were going to go with Hunter and Mick was, you know, still in that Vince McMahon borrowed time thing for whatever reason. So Mick knew his role was to make Hunter get Hunter over and to make him be perceived as a tough guy. And he did that in, uh, in, uh, in, in spades, quite frankly. All right, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the next match where we've got gold dust and Brian Pillman. They're going to go seven minutes and 15 seconds. Uh, I don't know what the fuck happened here, but the worst finish, uh, maybe in pay-per-view history. Or so we would think we know Austin's going to be injured later. So we give an excuse here, but, uh, this is sort of a weird deal here. This pinning combination. I thought the match before that was okay. Meltzer only gave it a half a star though. What'd you think of the finish and, and why didn't these guys click? It felt like, you know, with the storyline and, and as much as they have been working together, this should have been a home run, but it was just not. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. And sometimes you get that, you know, if those guys wrestle 10 times, Conrad, uh, probably seven or eight of them were going to be really good matches. It would not be, uh, Meltzer half star things. Uh, but that night was not their night and the finish didn't do them any favors. Uh, so, but I thought the story was pretty, I liked the combination. I like Goldust is another hell of a hand. You know, I still say that his match to Cody in Vegas, uh, was as good a match I've seen this year and maybe yeah. for many years. And that includes Okada and Omega and all that stuff. Everybody, you know, blue chews over. Uh, so I, 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 I thought it was disappointing because I, both guys are too damn good to have a so-so outing. And I thought Terry Runnels involvement, in it was good. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, so it had the elements were there just on that night. It didn't work. It was uh, an interesting match. And, and I guess we should mention that. Um, this feud has a touch of realism to it because Dustin Rhodes has said that Brian dated his wife, Marlena way back in the day before they were married, which made him a little insecure. He didn't have a problem with Brian. They were friendly. He was doing his best to go with the flow, but he was a little uncomfortable because he hated the idea that his wife had history with his opponent here. 
was that ever brought up to you or is it just business as usual? Uh, well, I knew that they dated because she, they were dating when Brian was flying Brian at WCW and, uh, Terry was uh, actually the makeup person. She had not gotten the business yet. She, she came to all the TV tapings, uh, and did makeup for the announcers or anybody else that needed it. Any women that were there, Missy Hyatt's and Alunder blaze or Medusa, uh, in those days. So yeah, they, they, they're dated, uh, back in those, in that era, but, uh, but it, to me, it added another wrinkle to the, to the, uh, storyline I thought was played well. Uh, but, but they didn't have any, nobody of those, those three had any issues that I can remember, or I am aware of at this moment, but about doing, uh, the storyline, cause it wasn't going to be that salacious. It was just going to infer, uh, and it was going to, you know, almost let you see behind the curtain, but not quite use your imagination more, which is not a bad way to book. Uh, get the fans thinking more and be using their imagination. They then will make a better emotional investment in what you're trying to sell them. So, uh, but I, it was a, dis- the match is a disappointment, but I, I, I never was, uh, uh disappointed in, in, in the booking. I, I still endorse all three of those people and we, they just didn't have the good night that we, that they needed to have. And quite frankly, after everything that went on that night, at the end of the night, it was kind of forgotten anyway. It didn't, you know what I mean? It was not a. It wasn't expected to be the the show show stealer. It wasn't, but it wasn't expected to be. But at the end of the night, it was a forgotten match, basically. Yeah, they're going to continue this feud too through the next pay per view, Ground Zero, where they're going to have a match for Terry Services. So, if uh, Brian wins, he'll also win Marlena's services for the next thirty days, and whatever that means. Yeah, I think we have an idea. Uh, so Goldust actually gets the win here. So Brian Pillman's going to have to show up in a dress on raw. So that's, that's sort of what's next. Uh, we've also got the Legion of doom here taking on the Godwins nine minutes and 51 seconds. Not a great match. It gets half a star. Um, you know, Meltzer would call it a, a pretty bad match. He would say that animal has dropped a bunch of weight and looks like he's in the best shape of his entire career, but there's tons of botched spots here. Uh, Lou Albano is sitting front row. Uh, there's no pop for the hot tag. According to Dave Meltzer, uh, it sort of is what it is. LOD get a win and they use a stuffed pile driver on, uh, Henry O'Godwin and Hawk pins him. So that's our finish. What'd you think of the match? Is that stuffed pile driver now called the Meltzer driver? Well, I think it is. If you do like a, a plancha flippity do <laughs> like, I mean, like you gotta go from the outside in. Yeah. And then it's a tombstone. No, so it's way different. It is a modified oh. stuff pile driver, but with flips and springboards and a tombstone position. Yeah. Whistles and bells. That's good. Okay. Uh, I, again, go back. I, th- those two teams did not have the chemistry on that night that they, I'd seen them have, uh, you know, the Godwins are a very underrated team. Uh, Mark and, uh, Dennis. They are, they're good guys and they, they just are so reliable, uh, durable, uh, tough guys do anything you needed. Uh, always came to work on time. Good people. Uh, the LOD, you know, you never knew exactly after that, that, uh, that NWA run where dusty was booking for Crockett after that, you never knew exactly what LOD you're going to get. Now, none of the versions were horrible, but some of the versions were just more on 
when the road warriors were allowed to have matches that were 10, eight, 10 minutes, something like that. Uh, they like this match here was nine fifty one. That's about the max. And so I think that, uh, I wasn't overly shocked that the match wasn't great, but I was expecting more of it. And I seen both teams have better matches than they had on that night in, in, uh, in New Jersey. Let's talk about the next match here, but before we do, it's the $1 million segment. So the concept is we're going to give away a million dollars and we've got all these keys to choose from. And, um, they've got to call two people on the telephone. The first number is disconnected. The, the second number doesn't answer. The third <laughs> number is at home, but he's not watching the TV show. But you know what? I was okay with this segment going long because Sonny here was as roll tide as roll tide gets. What's she know it? Sable. Well, either way, you know who I'm talking about. Oh, uh, you want you want to clean that up? Make yourself <laughs> make yourself sound better. <laughs> well, listen, I'm not that concerned about it. I uh, I enjoyed the segment. Uh, I thought this was a a fun dialing segment, uh, just because we got the extended uh, stretch of, uh, of, of ladies here on camera, but I know we're going to, we're going to do a show on Sable, uh, in the next few weeks, it's going to be one of the more eye-opening shows you probably will hear from us of what, what we had with her. I mean, a lot of people still this day because of, of the, the revolution, the women's revolution, the evolution of the development of in-ring skills, athleticism by the women who make a living wrestling nowadays. You know, she can't be compared to that. That's not what she did. She was an attraction and she was a legitimate bona fide superstar. And the, there, all the measurables that you could utilize, whether it be playboy covers, merchandise, minute by minute ratings, whatever it may be, uh, calendars, posters, whatever she, she checked the box. She was big time. And I think you're beginning to see it, Conrad, by what you just mentioned. You don't remember a damn thing, Harley, about the million-dollar giveaway, but you can remember that Sable was a part of the presentation. You know, I, Sable's there in a black outfit, but Sonny in the silver outfit was more my speed. Uh, I was a huge Sonny mark, so whatever Sonny did back then, uh, I was all for. But it was it's clear to see why Sable became a superstar, and I'm looking forward to us covering her real soon here on the show. We haven't done a lot of personality profiles. That'll be a fun one. Next yeah. up, we've got Davy boy <laughs> Smith retaining the European title with a DQ win over Ken Shamrock. Um, you know, this is sort of the, the formula we're doing here where Shamrock goes berserk and he chokes out Davy boy Smith. All the officials are trying to break it up. Finally, he breaks the hold, but he gives Patterson Briscoe and two refs belly to belly suplexes and a huge pop from the crowd, really a fun moment on the show here. And it, uh, doesn't hurt Davy boy. He doesn't have to pay off a silly stipulation, but you're showing Shamrock who's already got a bloody mouth that, I mean, he's, he's Billy badass and he's ready for the big time. Yeah. He's, he's great in anger. That's what we were talking about earlier. The, the, uh, passionate. Ken Shamrock, the emotional Ken Shamrock is a sight to behold. And, uh, that's what we, so that's what a lot of bookers look at this way. And I'm not disagreeing with them at all. That last memory of that match of 
uh, Patterson, Briscoe, and two referees getting belly to belly suplexed is what we're going to remember. And it obviously worked because there was a huge pop that they didn't hardly care about during the match, but they cared about the post-match uh, aftermath. It's much like we talked about the other day, uh, uh, Great American Bash with Flair and Funk having that five-minute post-match uh, aftermath. That's what people remember. The match was great, but they remember the post-match. The last thing they saw, they retained more uh, prominently, and that's what you got with this deal. So, I thought it was a I thought it was a nice presentation. I know Meltzer didn't like it. Uh, I think what do you get uh, three quarter star once something like that. Yeah, he was not he was not kind to it. He gave it a yeah. star and three quarters. Yeah, well, I think everybody's their opinion. It's his opinion. I don't disagree with that. Everybody's right to their opinion. I thought it was a little bit better than that, quite frankly. But I I love the ending. I love the the exit was 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 uh, classic. Let's keep it rolling. Talk about the next match here. Uh, this one is just sort of there for me. It's nine minutes and seven seconds. Los Bariquas get a win over the disciples of apocalypse, the DOA. So we're big on gang warfare here. We get a brawl, but it's not very pretty. It gets half a star. Um, sort of is what it is. What'd you think? Too long. It went nine minutes in, uh, the previous match with Davey boy and shamrock, two guys that actually, you know, uh, have a, had a story. It's more straight line. There's more symmetry in the booking. Uh, got seven and a half minutes. So that to me was a tip off right there that there was, there's mismanagement there on our part of, uh, uh, laying the match out. It's funny to me where guys, uh, believe automatically Conrad that they, if they have more time, they will automatically tell a better story. Right. And that's just not true. You know, uh, I remember back in, in the seventies. This old guy, uh, helped me learn to referee Leo Voss. What a great guy he was Worked for Leroy McGurk. And, uh, uh, he said to some, somebody said, well, what are we doing? He said, well, you're going to, you're going to do a 10 minute Broadway. First match of the night was really a 10 minute Broadway, believe it or not, 10 minutes. And the first match I refereed 10 minute Broadway in Tulsa. And I didn't know what Broadway meant until I got to the ring. So I wasn't overly smart. I wasn't reading the deserve back then. Apparently, I don't know if he's been around then to say what he was. It'll be a wise ass. Uh, but that's just bad management uh, on, on that situation. But I'd have had Bulldog and, and Shamrock go a little longer. And uh, DQ is okay as long as you give me that exit. But the Lost Fariquas and the DOA, they were there largely to get a payday. And they deserved it because they worked all the house shows. They put in their time, uh, did all the stuff. And then the big pop there was the whole gang stuff was when the nation of domination came through the crowd. It seems like coming through the crowd is almost an automatic layup pop. Why is that? Do you think fans get close to the guys before either immediately before or immediately after or both a, a combat they're, 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 they're close. They can touch, they can see, they can smell. Uh, so I just think that that interaction, that closeness that you get when you come to a pro wrestling event and cause the talents are just, they're just, they're, they got to be fan friendly. The smart ones realize you're an entrepreneur pal. And if you ain't fan friendly, uh, all you're doing is shitting on your customers and what business in the world can, can manifest itself to any level of profitability by taking advantage of your customers and taking them for granted. Can't it'll never happen. Let's get to our main event or I'll. The co-main event. It's really why we're here. The match everybody remembers most. It's not necessarily Undertaker and Brett. It's Steve Austin and Owen Hart. 
Uh, Steve Austin's going to win the match and the intercontinental title from Owen Hart in 16 minutes and 16 seconds. Uh, they had the best match on the card and Meltzer agreed. It was by far the best match on the card until the injury cuts it short. Uh, there's a spot here where, um, they're trading sleeper holds. Austin uses a jawbreaker and then he reverses an Austin move and drops him into a tombstone pile driver. And instead of going to his knees, he drops to his ass and mm-hmm. immediately you can tell something's up. Uh, Steve would write, uh, I was going to win the intercontinental title back from Owen on that night. And my stipulation for my challenge was that if I couldn't beat him and win, I was going to have to kiss his ass. And we'd really built that up on TV as a major deal. And it was a, another simple, easy to understand storyline. So the day came and I'm talking to Owen in the back and we're throwing a few things together for the finish of the title match. And I said to him, what if you do that thing where I come in for the elbow and you rotate your back and you pick me up and give me the tombstone pile driver. Then you cover me and I'll kicked out before the three count. And he adds, Oh, and I don't trust just anybody to do a pile driver on me. You can do it right. And he said, Owen said, yeah. And he clarifies you're going to your knees, right? And he said, no, I'm going to drop to my ass. And Austin says, well, you need to go to your knees, right? And <laughs> Owen says, no, I dropped to my ass. And he writes, that's two times I said that. And I was thinking I'm dealing with Owen Hart, the brother of Brett and the son, the son of Stu. I guess he knows what he's doing. He's ribbing me about dropping to his ass instead of his knees. Owen is a hell of a technician. When he assured me I'd be okay, I took his word that I'd be okay, and I didn't think twice about it. I had mentioned my concerns to him twice, but in an inverted tombstone pile driver, done the way the Undertaker does it, it's always the knees, not the ass. So I figured Owen's got it. He knows my concern. I asked him about it twice, and that's the big spot in the match. Eventually he sets the spot up. I spun Owen around. He lands on his feet and he picks me upside down and wham, he jumps straight to his ass. There's no room for me to protect my head. If you watch the videotape, my head's six to eight inches below his ass. I weigh 250. He weighed 225 or thereabouts at the time. And with the jump up and impact down, man, I got spiked head first onto the mat hard as hell. And that's one of the things that's going to turn you into a quadriplegic quicker than anything. Like what happened to Christopher Reeves, Christopher Reeves, rather it's called an axle load. Uh, it's not a whiplash thing, but a major impact blow to the spinal cord. And I remember when it happened, I was going to kick out at two and a half or two and three quarters. And I was going to sell the pile driver, but kick out at the last second. But when I hit the mat, it was as if a big gong went off in my body. When that stuff happens, usually you go unconscious or get all groggy. But I stayed razor sharp. It was like I had super hearing my legs straightened up and my arms bent up and my hands were frozen. And I remember kind of picking my head up from the mat and telling Earl, tell him, don't fucking touch me. I can't move. So he goes over to Owen and says, don't touch him. He can't move. And I sell him now tell him to buy me some time. And Earl gets the, uh, the, the word to Owen and Owen starts chanting to the crowd. Now he's going to have to kiss my ass. And he's buying time and you can see all of this going by. When did you ringside watching this realize Austin's fucked right after he, uh, he hit because it was just, it was awkward. It was, it was out of sync again. The knees uh, is what you're looking for there on that move. And, and Owen's just a great river. And, uh, I'm sure Steve thought when he, Owen said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to fall to my ass. So no, I'm going to fall to my ass. He probably thought Owen might've been ribbon because like Steve said, it was a key part of the match. Uh, but right after it happened, it just hit the body English told you everything you unfortunately 
needed to know. It says a minute and a half go by and he could start to get the feeling back in his limbs, his shoulders and interior delts felt like they were on fire. He said it took everything he had to bend his legs and try to get into a crawl position. Uh, but he couldn't crawl on his hands because he couldn't use his hands yet, but he had to get to the finish and he had to win. So he's crawling around on his elbows and he tells the referee roll up for the win. And, um, he told Owen what he had called. And the next thing that happened is what he called the worst looking roll up in wrestling history. Cause he can't use his <clears throat> limbs. All right. Uh, but Owen, uh, gets on his back he gets the three count and he kicks out right after three. And Austin would say, why to make himself look strong. Like he was barely beat that kick out hurt like hell too. And could have easily injured my neck further. I had wanted to get the match over with right away. And the only reason I called for the roll up rather than just laying there and let him beat me is because of the kiss, my ass stipulation by finishing the match, the way it was supposed to go. I was doing everything in my power to be stone cold, Steve Austin. What do you remember about this moment, the finish, the reaction backstage, the relationship? What can you tell us about this? Very tense, very tense, Conrad, uh, a lot of concern and it's going to sound bad if I don't say this the right way. Uh, but you got to be first and foremost concerned about a man's health. But at the same time, uh, you're looking at the guy that you see is going to be, unless he gets injuries, bite him in the ass, is going to be the biggest we ever had. And now that may be over just as he got started. It took him seven years to get to WWE, uh, territories, missed booking underutilized in WCW. We all remember all those stories. Uh, but you know, he, he just thought, well, this poor son of a bitch is not going to live his dream. And, uh, so, and we're all learning new things about neck injuries and different kinds of surgeries and all these things. So he had a great surgeon, luckily in, in San Antonio, uh, a fellow by the name of Lloyd Youngblood, uh, good dude. I met him. I was down there several times. He's a hell of a doctor, big guy. And he took care of Steve and got Steve believing he could be healthy again. Uh, and he did, but boy, we didn't know. And then and during that Steve's time off, I was in, in and out of San Antonio a few times. Uh, I see Owen at TV. He'd always pull me off the side. Didn't fail, uh, and to ask about Steve because he knew I'd be talking to him, not just because of my job, but also because of our friendship. And, uh, so I tell him what, you know, how Steve was doing and but he never said to me, uh, well, uh, if you think about it, tell him I said, hello, or tell him whatever I, I, he never got there. Cause that's kind of awkward. Uh, I know that, that Owen had kind of re- been reluctant about contacting Steve on the injury. And I think, I don't think it was anything mean spirited. I think it was strictly a matter that he was embarrassed. He was a heart and, and for to many people wrestling equals the heart family. And he's a, and Owen, <clears throat> unlike Brett, Brett would tell you. He never hurt anybody in his life in a match he had. That's a great thing to say. And he meant it and he's true. Owen could never say that now because he not only hurt somebody, he, he may have ended the career of the biggest star. We looked like we were ever going to have. So it was <clears throat> tense moments there. Cause Owen had his friends and Steve had his friends and, but the old veterans knew that 
uh, if Austin got hot and could stay healthy, they're going to make a lot of money off the houses he drew. And, and that, and that, and that came to fruition, but boy, it was touch and go there for a while. And, uh, I know Steve was very, very angry that night. I mean, almost to the point of couldn't be consoled because he, he, apparently his body was telling him this is over. I can't do this anymore. And, uh, luckily he got over the shock and the trauma, the trauma of that got his surgery and, uh, got great care from Dr. Youngblood and, <clears throat> and came back and was able to squeeze a few more years out of it. Yeah, he was. And and, and we know that he's going to deal with this neck injury for the rest of his career. And, uh, it won't be too much longer and, and, and we're done with him within ring action. But the big question here is what do we do with Austin now? And obviously this is going to be, you know, a, a major thing for his career because you guys had to sort of get creative with how you used him coming out of this because nobody even knows he's going to be okay. I mean, Meltzer would say that he was taken to the hospital and they did an x-ray that night and the report came back negative, but then he had further testing done in Philadelphia and it showed that he had a bruised, uh, spinal cord. And, um, when he got uh, an MRI done, they showed that in, in football, it's what's known as a stinger, which will be trauma to the C4 and C5 vertebrae, but it's not a guarantee that he'll be able to return from this because he's had some nagging injuries before this as well. Do you think that, um, I mean, what type of effect do you think this really had on Owen? And you said that Brett took great pride in saying that he never hurt anybody and you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, you, you just, <clears throat> Owen is almost universally talked about as being, you know, cream of the crop, salt of the earth, nicest yeah. guy ever. But for whatever reason, this is like the only sort of, uh, sore spot in his career. I think it's strictly Conrad was a matter. He was embarrassed. I really believe that. I believe that, uh, the family tradition, uh, the great training that Stu helped his children, uh, to provide his children that wanted to wrestle. Uh, you know, uh, Brett and Owen weren't the only guys in that family that wrestled. Uh, and so I think that there was an embarrassment there. Uh, and sometimes you get in these situations where you're it's so uncomfortable, you're not sure what you should say. Obviously it would have been much, uh, and again, you know, uh, Brett said this many times he tried to get Owen to make the phone call, but he wouldn't do it. He felt so bad about doing it. He didn't know what to say. Right. And I, I, it's hard to get mad at somebody if that's the reason that they didn't follow up with a phone call, total embarrassment, humiliation. He felt like he let the family down. I'm sure that's how he felt. I really am. And, uh, and he also knew from a standpoint of being in a territory that your, your guy that's going to be your top baby face, is going to sell more merchandise and more tickets than anybody on the roster. Uh, if he, if he's not there, uh, the fact that he's not there to sell tickets is going to affect my income. All those big houses you've been, we've talked about in this show today, uh, or, you know, you could, there, it was a team effort, but there's no way in hell that those half million dollar houses would be, uh, becoming prominent. If Austin was not on the card, just no brainer. So I, I think that's what that was. I, I never had any animosity toward Owen. You know, he, it was a, is a hell of a thing to have happen. Uh, but I, I never felt like he, it was, it was ill-intended or obviously at the end of the day, Conrad, it was a little, it was a little clumsy, I guess, awkward. It wasn't safe. 
And that's just not like those guys. Owen should have done it, going to his knees, called it a day. And we would be talking about this now. It's worth mentioning that, uh, there is videotape of Austin doing a sit out power bomb like this against Masahiro, not power bomb, but pile driver against Masahiro Chono over in Japan. And I think Chono was injured as a result. This is years prior. So, you know, it was known at this point, at least to Steve that doing it that way, uh, isn't going to be a good result. And of course we know that, that Owen passed away in, in May of 99. So less than two years after this. Yeah. Uh, Steve is out of action until uh, survivor series where he comes back with the intercontinental title match, uh, with Owen. And for those months in between, man, he's really making the most of it. He's hitting a stunner on the commissioner, Sergeant slaughter. He's hitting a stunner on Vince McMahon at Madison square garden and getting arrested. It's sort of weird because, you know, it's, it's fun to sort of, what if, if Austin isn't injured here, you wouldn't have had to as, as Bruce would say, program as much Gaga that he stole from Pat Patterson. Um, <laughs> you might not have seen him stun Vince McMahon at Madison square garden. He would have had not to say that the push would have went away, but it would have been handled differently. And maybe that connection with the crowd wouldn't have been as strong as it was because he had so many non-physical or non-wrestling matches, rather lots of talking, lots of promos, lots of beer drinking, lots of middle fingers, lots of arrests. Lots of other stuff that can endear him to the audience instead of just bell to bell. A lot like uh, we talked earlier about Shawn Michaels being a referee. Yeah. Uh, uh, and how that's going to play into their match with Undertaker and and uh, and Brett uh, is using your resources. Austin on television was a, it's really a phenomenal thing. The fans just wanted to see him. Now, obviously, if he could be in a match. They'd like that maybe a little bit more, but the bottom line of that was, is that as Steve would say, uh, is they wanted to, they, they just were happy to see him. They're happy to see him walking and getting, and, and, and maintaining that attitude, that aura about him. So we just utilized him to whatever, whatever he could do and doing a, uh, a, a stunner on the right people was just absolutely money. The, some of the biggest pops all night was. Steve giving somebody a stutter and drinking beer and it just worked. No, no rhyme or reason. Why did it work? Because he was over, he believed in what he was doing. And, uh, so I, I, uh, gosh, dang, he just, he still showed not even wrestle. And so and we didn't lost all that. Let's get to our main event. Bret Hart is going to regain the WWF title against the undertaker in 28 minutes and nine seconds. Really, really an underrated match. I don't think this one gets talked about enough. If you're going to watch one match from the show we're covering today, this is the one They tell a great story. I think it's some of Brett's best work. He's telling an incredible job, just a little nuance things that he does, uh, his facials mouthing the F word throughout the match, um, putting the sharpshooter around the post fans. That was, that nuts. was cool. Yeah, that was, that was really the sharpshooter around the post. I'd never seen that. And, uh, it was just a, uh, unique little nuance to, to, uh, obviously the sharpshooter alone is a, is a very painful, uh, hold submission hold. But when you, you gotta, we have to go in a kind of business for ourselves is to assume what it's like having your leg wrapped around the ring post and then getting that hold applied. So I thought it was very innovative, very, not very 
smart wrestling by Brett on that, on that particular thing, especially. Of course, there is a moment here in the match where, um, Brett's going to take a chair and hit the undertaker with it. And he's going to motion for Sean to make the count undertaker kicks out. Eventually Hart and Michaels start arguing and Michaels notices the chair. Obviously he ramps it up. He starts screaming at Hart. If he uses the chair, he's going to get disqualified. And eventually of course, Brett spits in his face. Yeah. And, and, uh, and do, you, do you see where it landed? Yes. Folks go back and watch this match. It could not have been done more perfectly. It didn't go in Sean's eye, but it went all over his eyebrow. Could not have been done more uh, dastardly or accurately. And man, the, the look on Sean Michaels face tells a million stories. So if you go back and watch this match on the WWE network or YouTube, wherever you, you choose, uh, check that look at Sean's face when he got the big loogie right in the eye. And then Sean swings the chair out of instinct and Brett, but Brett ducks and the chair hits the undertaker. So of course, Brett makes the cover. Sean very reluctantly counts the pin and storms off really, really great storytelling. And you can see sort of a behind the scenes on wrestling with shadows where Brett is discussing this match with Pat Patterson. And they're talking about how it would all be put together. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to sort of see a peek behind the curtain, but I thought the storytelling in this match was really, really well done. Uh, it's Brett's fifth world title win. I think it's the first time the world title ever changed hands at a SummerSlam. Uh, and at this point, it ties in with Hulk Hogan for the most world title runs in company history at five. Pretty phenomenal finish. I love the match. Uh, I think this one is uh, easily their most underrated. What'd you think? I loved it. I loved it. I loved the, the Everybody carried their share of the water. Uh, Undertaker was Undertaker. Uh, the phenom, you know, uh, Brett had a big stake here to win the title, the world title, WWE title. Uh, and that was a lot of writing on that deal, but, uh, less Sean Michaels role as the referee in that encounter, uh, cannot be, uh, glossed over his facials where he was, his body English, all those things. Sean worked as hard being the referee in a very, uh, unique triangle involving himself, Bret Hart and the undertaker and that title, uh, uh, just, it was, it was pretty damned amazing. So, uh, I, I really enjoyed that match. And, uh, I thought that Meltzer's rating on it was a little low, but that's me. Uh, I liked the match. The thing about it for all of us, we're sitting there announcing this match, Conrad, uh, and we're wondering how Steve is. That's what your, that's where your mind was. And I don't say that any disrespect to the guys in the main event, but you know, you're wondering about how this guy is cause he got dropped on his head. Is he, is he, is he, can he walk? Can he move? Can he, is it, is he, is it, what, what's going on? So that's kind of what was occupying at least in my mind. And, uh, but I thought this guy's had a great match. Anytime you got to follow something like that, where the audience really knows something's wrong, boy, it's challenging to get them to reinvest, but I'll tell you. Uh, and it took almost a half an hour to transact their business, but between Sean and Brett and Taker, uh, they kicked some ass, man. That was a slobber knocker of a match restaurant quality all the way. And, uh, love, I could, I couldn't call enough Bret Hart undertaker and Sean Michael involved matches, uh, for, for my liking, loved it. Great chemistry with all those guys. And they're all unselfish Conrad. They sold, 
the, everybody did their shares. I said, everybody carried their share of the water in that match and it made it great. Well, the next night, uh, of course, we're going to get Shawn Michaels, um, or we're going to get Bret Hart rather to come out and so strut that ass about winning the world title. And, uh, it's going to be announced that he's going to be facing the Patriot next, uh, by the commissioner Ch- chat me up though. You know, this is, um, I guess it's interesting, but we've seen a ton of buildup for Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, and we're not going straight there. We're going to pivot to the Patriot and, and then Sean and undertaker was that because survivor series was always the plan with Sean and Brett, or was it because, you know, these guys just got in a fucking fight six weeks ago. We don't need to push our luck. Let's just let them wrestle somebody else and see how it goes. A little bit of that. Uh, but I think the plan all along was to try to do the, the, the title change in Montreal. And, uh, you know, then people start, people will think, hear this. So see there, JR said it, they're, they're sticking up Brett's ass, the Canadian thing. Well, you know, I, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that folks. You got your right to your opinion. I certainly appreciate it. I don't, I don't agree with that philosophy whatsoever. Uh, it was, it was earmarked to happen in Montreal at the survivor series. It was earmarked to happen at the survivor series, no matter if it was in Montreal or, uh, Muskogee. That was a, that was a circle on the calendar. So that's what we were going to do. So, uh, but I think that having holding them apart makes the survivor series match bigger Conrad by not overexposing and putting Sean and Brett back together. And remember, like you said, they'd had many other outings. They had some classic stuff, but give it the, give it, don't give it to the audience to make them quote unquote pay for it at a pay-per-view was, was the logic there. So I think it had less to do with Montreal and had more to do with the survivor series than anything else. Cause based on Brett getting ready to leave and exploring that opportunity, we didn't have a lot more opportunities until January, uh, to get something like that done at, at a, at a pay-per-view that was befitting of that match and that title. Well, it's befitting that we're covering Sable next week. We certainly gave you a little bit of a tease this week. Next week, the same time here on Grill and JR to be all about Sable. On the 15th, we're going to do a Q&A episode, our very first one, and those are always tons of fun. Check out our latest Love to Know episode with Bruce on something to wrestle. Uh, and don't forget, on August 22nd, we're covering SummerSlam 2009. I'm looking forward to that one because we haven't covered a lot of modern stuff. Uh, yeah. And that show has a lot of interesting stuff on it. A, a real quick refresher here. Your main event in a tables, ladders, and chairs match is CM Punk and Jeff Hardy. Uh, for the WWE title, we would have Randy Orton and John Cena. Then for the ECW title, we've got Christian and William Regal. There's a tag team match with Sean and Hunter taking on Cody Rhodes and Ted DiBiase. We've got Kane and the Great Khali, which is a main event anywhere in the world. Anywhere, by God, anywhere. <laughs> uh, Jericho. Show. How about Big Show and Chris Jericho teaming up to take on Crime Time? MVP is in there with Jack Swagger, and Rey Mysterio is going to wrestle Dolph Ziggler for the Intercontinental title. So, SummerSlam 2009 is coming at you on the 22nd. And then on August 29th, this ought to have some people talking. We're going to talk about CM Punk. What do you think we'll cover there? Uh, is he going to wrestle again? <laughs> and, and, and is he going to wrestle again on the 31st? 
uh, at uh, All Out. There's a million stories in the Naked City, and CM Punk certainly makes up a big one. And I don't expect him to ever wrestle again, personally, but stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. Hey, you, you got him. You got him out of his house <clears throat> to come do uh, uh, Starcast. Yeah, and, and nobody nobody thought that was going to happen. So no. to say that he'll never wrestle again uh, is ludicrous. I don't think that he will. Now, if you said, "Well, Jerry, would you like to see him wrestle again?" You're damn right. And I'd like to be calling his matches. That's what I'd like to do, and give him some time, the opponents, and the creative freedom to have fun again. Will he want to do that? I don't know. I haven't talked to him since he left WWE. Uh, so. But he's a, he's a strange guy. He's a unique cat, hugely talented, great mind. Uh, I can see him being a really cool color commentator in this genre or any others. And he's doing some MMA, MMA stuff as well. So that should be a real good show. Hey, Conrad, before we go today, I want to mention, uh, just for folks, you know, uh, it was t- a year ago when, uh, Jerry Lawler's son, Brian Christopher, uh, died uh, under mysterious circumstances. Uh, in a, in a jail cell there in, in uh, near Nash, uh, near uh, Memphis. And, uh, Jerry filed a $3 million, uh, lawsuit uh, against the authorities for wrongful death. And, uh, if you got a chance to, uh, hear our show and you think about it on Twitter or something at Jerry Lawler, just reach out and say, Hey King, we're thinking about you or, you know, pulling for you or whatever. Uh, I'm sure Conrad would agree with that. He's. He's a friend of the show. Uh, he's been my friend for years and years. He's a, uh, you know, just a, a hell of a guy. Great guy. I gave you the shirt off his back. Couldn't ask for a nicer guy in real mm-hmm. life or on TV and just yeah. consummate professional. And that story, you know, listen, it's fucked up and you can read all about it. But what's most important is that, you know, a friend of our wrestling family knows that we got their back. So by all means, send some well wishes to at Jerry Lawler. On social media, he'd love to hear from you right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can tell you folks, when, when my Jan got killed, uh, the social media world reached out to me and gave me a big hug. And I cannot tell you, I don't have the vocabulary to tell you how much that meant to me and still does. So, uh, you know, uh, I just hope that you'll consider that and Conrad very well put at Jerry Lauder on Twitter, just say King or we're pulling for you and, and, uh, let him, he'll appreciate that. He's old school like me and Conrad, you know, we're Southern guys. We appreciate a thank you and a thinking about you. Appreciate you. We, we, we all still appreciate that stuff. And maybe the country should do more of that too. Maybe who knows? Well, and in the meantime, uh, tell your friends, check out grilling Jr. follow us on social media at Jr. grilling, make plans to join us in Charlotte. It's uh, Jr. and Conrad.com on August 17th. And then of course, September 29th, we're coming to see you Rochester. And it's Jim is where you can snag your tickets. And if you haven't already, you need to plan to be in Chicago Labor Day weekend. It's all that weekend for AEW, but it's also Starcast weekend. We've got John Moxley on stage with a live mic with Jim Ross. We've got Tony Schiavone sitting down with Cody Rhodes. And then of course we've got CM Punk with a live mic in his hometown. Man, you never know what's going to go down. It will be the most newsworthy convention of the year. You don't want to miss it. It's Starcast. Uh, it's S T A R R C A S T.com. If you'd like to pick up tickets and do some meet and greets, but if you can't make it, Jim, I don't know that me and you've talked about this, but when you order Starcast on fight, or at least if you pre-order, 
uh, you're going to get access to not only Starcast three, which is 11 shows and it's only 39 bucks. They're both live and on demand. But in addition to that, you get everything we did at Starcast two and you get everything we did at Starcast one. So you get one, two, and three all included when you purchase three for just 39 bucks. It's like 70 oh, hours of content. That's awesome. That's a great deal. That's a value folks. And like I said, Conrad and I are common guys and we believe in, in treating you guys fairly because you treat us fairly. You listen to our show. You tell your friends about us. You're helping us grow our brand. And for that, we appreciate, but you're going to see about how we price things and, and what we're the, such the, the packaging that Conrad does is amazing. Uh, that, uh, it's really, a, really, a uh, amazing to me how we, how he markets this stuff. And that's a great value. It's less than $4 a show for the new stuff. Yeah. When and, you, all told, it's like 67 cents a show. Just go <laughs> check it out. It's fight.tv. That's F I T E dot TV, or just go to starcast on fight.com. And, uh, when you pre-order, as long as you do it here in the next couple of weeks, you're going to get one, two, and three all included and CM Punk, Cody, John Moxley with a live mic, man, this is going to be a weekend. You don't want to mess. Plus all the other great stuff. I sit down with sting and one with Dustin Rhodes and a debate with Bruce and Eric and uh, a, a Taz show and I sit down with the Bucks and Cody and on and on and on. Whatever you're looking for, whether it's another JR and the King show or me and Tony Schiavone, it's happened at a Starcast, and you can check it out right now. Starcastonfight.com. We'll be back next week with Sable, and then we're going to keep the hits coming, man. And CM Punk at the end of the month, that's going to have a lot of people talking. Yeah. Hey, Conrad, by the way, I got a lot of feedback on people mentioning that WWE is no longer carrying JR's uh, barbecue sauces, ketchup, mustard, et cetera. And that's true. And it's not a, it's not a shock. It shouldn't come to shock to anybody. Uh, you know, I don't work for them anymore. So they're, you know, they don't have to, they don't have, they didn't have to then. My point is, is that don't take it personally. Don't be mad at them because they're not carrying my product. Uh, I work for another company that's, uh, that's trying to compete for a slice of that uh, wrestling audience. Uh, but the good news is that our friend Ryan Barkin in, in Chicago at pro wrestling tees, uh, is he and I have been talking this week. It looks as if it's a pretty good, strong look that, uh, pro wrestling teaser is going to become our distributor for our, for our products or sauces and so forth, beef jerky s- s- seasoning. So, uh, stay tuned for that. I'll keep you abreast of that on, uh, on my Twitter feed and Facebook and so forth, but the, it's going to become available to everybody. Uh, especially in North America, as, as I understand it, we're still working out those details. So stay with me, stay tuned, and we'll be bringing some big news on that front here sooner than later. All right. That's it. Everybody. Thanks for checking out grilling JR. Leave us a five-star review, hit the subscribe button and tell your friends all about the brand new format here on Jim Ross's podcast, grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross on the mighty Westwood one. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.